Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers. I'm Shane. And I'm Trevor. On this podcast, we take turns choosing albums to discuss and review. We alternate between one album released this calendar year and one that's been around a while. All right, we're going back to the 90s again for this one. This album's got some personal history for you. Why don't you tell the listeners what we'll be talking about today? Yeah, definitely. I've known these guys probably close to 20 years. I've been listening to them since sometime in high school, early college. Today we're going to be reviewing an album released on August 19th, 1996. This album is titled Silent Steeples, and it is the first album released by one of my all-time favorite bands, Dispatch. Okay, so 1996, we've talked in prior episodes that I'm a few years older than you, but even for me, 1996 would have been a little early for me to really be getting into music with any particular depth. You would have been really young. Yeah, I was born in 87, so I would have been nine years old in 1996. So I didn't discover these guys until at least six or seven years after the release of this first album. And how many albums in were they at that point? You know, I'm not exactly sure when I first discovered them. I've been racking my brain all week trying to figure out if a friend exposed them to me or if I heard about them via the internet. I'm not sure, but I know the first song I heard was The General, which is one of their most popular songs. And then I went on to download a bunch of their albums because that was the time period that peer-to-peer music file sharing was getting big. Dispatch was instrumental in accepting that movement and advocating for it because it really helped get their name out there. But I would guess that their first four albums were out by that time period. Nice. And do you remember, was it the file sharing component that introduced you to this band? I know you talked about that being a big part of this band's reach at the time. I know that's how I really got into them because back then you could download albums or do a search for a whole band's discography. I know that's how I really dove deep into their music as a band, but as far as who exposed me to the song The General, I can't I can't recall that point, but I know that was my entry point and I liked them right away, and that was the time when I was discovering a lot of music, picking the bands that I really enjoyed and and uh doing a search to try to find their music out there so I could really get into them and Dispatch was one of those early bands that I cling to right away. So I know it was it was through Napster and other avenues like that that I was able to access their music as a, a broke high school kid. And then from there, as I've mentioned on shows in the past, for the bands that I really enjoyed listening to through high school and college, even though we had the ability 
to download albums and burn CDs, it was always difficult to find live albums. I, I would make a point uh, when I had the money to go purchase some of their live albums. So I have a lot of those in my collection. You know, this band particularly, both just in how they sound, the type of band that they are, but even being a band that got discovered within the context of all that file sharing, I think the live element to them is a key part of their sound. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I was fortunate to see them for the first time back in 2019 before the lockdowns. It was one of the last big music festivals I went to. They were one of the headliners. So I got to see them after all these years of being a fan. That was that was an incredible moment. That was a lot of fun. But you're, you're totally right about them shining as a band when they're live. I mean, for a, a band that really likes to jam out and do a lot of harmonies and sing in rounds and feed off of each other, you can hear that. I think if you're if you're really zoned in on your headphones and you're paying attention, but when you see them live and you, you see them interact with each other on stage, you can tell they're having a lot of fun and they, they really enjoy playing together. Yeah, that's the impression I got. And this was my introduction when you told me this was the album that we were doing. I had only heard of them because you had brought them up when we first started the podcast, but I really hadn't listened until we picked this as our album. And that's the impression I got. I felt like... You know, I'm, I'm understanding this album, I'm getting this band, but watching some of the live performances, you sent me some documentaries and YouTube clips, and that's where I felt like I really sort of understood the band itself. But otherwise, this was completely brand new for me. I didn't know anything about the band's history. I didn't have any personal history with them. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the band and the formation and what's led up to this album and, and albums after that. Yeah, let's get into their backstory a little bit. So the band was formed at Middlebury College in Vermont in the early 90s. Pete Francis Heimbold on vocals, bass, and guitar was friends with Brad Corrigan, who goes by Bradigan, on vocals, drums, percussion, guitar, and harmonica. And the two of them were writing songs and playing music together. And somehow they met Chad Ermston, who's also on vocals, guitar, bass, uh, percussion, trombone, and piano. And the three of them started to toy with the idea of, of playing music together and eventually formed the band. Back in college, they would go around to the dorm rooms and, and play for people and, and try to get some local shows and get a name for themselves. They eventually became popular and moved to the Boston area where they started performing a lot on the jam band circuit. Their music can be a little difficult to classify, but it involves elements of indie rock, roots rock, reggae, flamenco, funk, ska, folk, and rap. Although they have a tremendous fan following and are known as one of the most successful and popular independent bands of all time, they never really quite reached that next level of fame and stardom. And part of that was by choice because they wanted to stay true to their roots as a band and play the kind of music they wanted to play. They've been cited as saying, or, or their, their managers and, and lawyers and people who worked with them behind the scenes on the business side have, have said they were approached by a lot of producers and labels who wanted to take them on as a band and probably would have allowed them to become mainstream a lot more quickly. But they really weren't interested in that because as I said, they, they wanted to play music their way. They wanted to stay true to their sound but despite all that, they did become very popular 
in the Boston area in the far northeast and began spreading their music through, as we mentioned earlier, peer-to-peer sharing sources like Napster, which the the band has been cited as being a big supporter of during those times. You know, as an independent label, that helped them get their music to people who otherwise would not have heard it, uh, including myself. And they were they were so instrumental in that movement and its positive effect that it had on them as a band that they were invited by Napster to speak at a congressional hearing when that was a big issue in the, the mid to late 90s. One of the lead singers, Chad Ermston, is quoted as saying, I'm proud to be one of the Napster poster children. It was so obvious to us that Napster was a good thing. In so many ways, it gave us a long career. It really felt like Napster broke us in a way that was totally unrealistic otherwise, being an unsigned band. And I, I think that's something that's that's really connected to this band. You know, we don't we don't really think about it nowadays, or at least people who didn't grow up in that era, that there was a time that it would be a, a problem to share music for free on the internet because they didn't have ads to make money or royalties and other required legal matters to make it a sophisticated or, or accepted form of sharing music as it is today. So it was kind of a taboo thing to the point that people were kind of nervous to download music. They might get they might get caught, their, their IP address might be tracked. And Dispatch was one of the bands that said, hey, look, this isn't such a bad thing, especially for us, because we're making a living on touring and doing concerts. That's that's what we want to do. We're going to put out some albums and and yeah, we want to we want to make some polished uh, music, but we're a jam band, we're a live band. We we want to hit the road in our in our bus and and put on shows for people. So the more people that know about us, the more shows we can do, the more tickets that are going to be sold. So for them, they've been cited as saying through that Napster Napster era is when they made the most money. So despite mainstream media and a lot of a lot of bands being concerned that Napster would take away from the revenue since people don't have to buy their albums anymore. You know, for bands like Dispatch, it really helped them because they were getting more people at their concerts, selling more tickets and, and merchandise and probably all that stuff. And it really helped make them the band that uh, they became over the years. Yeah, what an interesting time for all of this to take place. I remember living through all that as a big music fan and not really knowing what to make of it. There was a part of me that felt like I shouldn't be downloading this or I shouldn't be doing that. And then there was this other part of me that was like, ah, it's all the record companies anyway, stick it to the man. And you know, and to hear an, a band like Dispatch being more in that camp saying, you know, no, this is, this is a way we are going to get ourselves out there. In some ways, they were just a little bit ahead of their time, I think. I think record companies and even some of those more established artists just didn't have the insight to understand what the internet was and not see it as a as a benefit to their progress instead of something that would curb it. Among a bunch of the clips that you sent me was some footage of some courtroom scenes with you know like artists like Alanis Morissette up there at the mic. And actually I, I don't recall what she was saying, but I remember the point of the clip was focusing on in the background. You saw Brad again or Chad sitting there waiting to say whatever they wanted to say, you know, in, in defense of it. And in retrospect, looking back, I think they were just a little bit ahead of their time. You know, there's pros and cons, as we talked about in prior podcasts, but 
at the end of the day, whether good or bad, that's the way music was going to go. Once that genie was out of the box, it wasn't going to be put back in again. And I think the artists that are seeing it were seeing it that way at the time were, you know, they were thinking progressively and, and figuring out how to exist with it as opposed to pushing it against something that was inevitable. I think you're totally right on that. And I guess I, I didn't make the connection until now. I remember seeing that clip too with Alanis and, and Brad in the back kind of poking his head through waiting for his turn to speak. She represented the mainstream pop, the, you know, iconic artist that was selling all those records and then probably felt a little threatened by the fact that people could go online and get her music for free now. But then you got Dispatch, an independent band that really wanted to speak out for the little guy and say, hey, this is actually good for us because it allows us to get our music out to other people. You know, in a way, Napster and other file sharing programs in the 90s for those smaller independent bands is similar to YouTube today and all the aspiring artists at home putting out music. It's a little different form. It's still free for us as the consumer and it exists because there's there's advertisements and you know they're making some money off of their channels. So it works for everybody uh, within this bigger ecosystem of performers, listeners and the other people behind the scenes who want to get their cut of being involved with putting that music out to to people. So the system we have today benefits everybody. Back then there was some concern that maybe it wouldn't, but as you said, it was inevitable. And that was just the first step in the evolution of being able to share music with people online. And I would echo the point that you made about not being really sure how to use that ability to to go online and, and get music. I probably started downloading music when I was 15 or 16. So the last thing I wanted to do was have the FBI knocking on the door, tracing the IP address saying, hey, we, we discovered that you've downloaded $10,000 worth of songs over the past year and, and be in, in big legal trouble because you heard about some cases where that happened with people, or maybe it was all just scare tactics. But there was always that concern. But, you know, like I said, I didn't have money at the time to spend anyway. So I wasn't going to be one of those people going out buying their studio albums from the store and I ended up buying a bunch of live albums and a lot of the bands that I that I downloaded the most that I became huge fans of I've seen in concert multiple times over the years so you know the revenue has come their way maybe it was a little delayed but most of the people during our era that probably would have been downloading a lot would have been the younger tech savvy generation our our parents were probably still buying CDs and you know not um pushing the boundaries on downloading music a because maybe they weren't as technologically savvy and b because they'd be more concerned about potentially breaking the law as us kids were you know just kind of testing the waters and, and trying it out so i think it probably helped majority of people over the years majority of artists reap the benefits in some way or another whether that was immediately like a band like dispatch or delayed like some of the others who now have better avenues via the internet to make even more money than they could selling albums at the local record store. Yeah, it's just a different landscape. It, I think if you are at the top of the food chain, it's actually harder than it was. But the entry point is lower. Anybody can create something in their bedroom now and get it out there. And of course, in 96, that was a little different. You weren't making the music in your bedroom. But if you can make it somehow, you could get it out there. 
And I think that's that's the part that would change. I think there's two points with it. One is that it just was different. It wasn't necessarily good or bad, perhaps. It was just a different landscape. And then the second point is, even if you could argue that in some ways maybe it wasn't good, it was inevitable. It was moving in that direction. Yeah, for sure. And as I've mentioned a few times already, it really propelled Dispatch to a higher level of fame. You know, I said they didn't quite get to that Alanis Morissette level of popularity, but within their community, the people who followed them really loved their music, and the the number of fans slowly grew over the years, and it slowly spread out of that Boston Northeast area to the rest of the U.S. and and all over the world. They were very active as a band between the years of 1996 and 2002, but then they took a, a little hiatus uh, to pursue side projects. Um, Chad, Brad, and Pete were all incredible musicians independently of each other, and they had contrasting ideas on how they wanted to take the music and maybe some personal political uh differences as well that slowly over time after after touring after being on the road for nearly four or five years straight you know they they kind of grew out of the the love that that uh initially brought them together and i guess maybe for lack of a better term from from the way it sounds they were just a little burned out so chad went his own way and started the band state radio brad pursued his solo career under the name brad again Pete started his solo career under under his name, Pete Francis, Francis being his middle name. But in 2004, the band decided to come back together for one last free show, a reunion show at the Hatch Shell in Boston, which they termed the Last Dispatch. And originally, they were only predicting between 10,000 and 30,000 fans, but people flocked from all over the world, including Italy, Portugal, South Africa, Spain, Mexico, New Zealand, Australia, and other nations, making up an estimated total audience of 166,000 people. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's the largest independent music event in, in the history of all time. For these guys to do that by themselves speaks volumes of how far they came from a few guys in college playing music in the dorm rooms in the 90s. And that was released on a three-disc set, uh, one that I mentioned earlier that I have. It was two CDs and one DVD titled All Points Bulletin. And that had the DVD that's been titled The Last Dispatch, which you can now find on YouTube for free. I know you watched that, Trevor, and I went back and went through it again, too, to get my mind in the right place for this podcast it it really depicts their upbringing their life on the road and their resistance to the mainstream movement and and uh their desire to stay true to who they were as a band you know i I made a, a connection that i don't know if i had in the past i've always been somewhat anti mainstream i've been one to say pop music is no good i don't like the stuff that's on the radio I won't say that I'm anti-pop or mainstream altogether, but I think I've always gravitated toward the indie rock scene and and the people who were doing things differently. And uh, after prepping for this podcast, I think Dispatch is probably uh, the one that should take credit for that. Bands like that that kind of did things their own way, at least for a really long time. So I think that's what drew me to that 
kind of music, that scene in the first place. Yeah, I could see that. And I think one interesting point to make there is that term indie music, obviously stemming from the word independent. By the time I described indie music, I was really talking about it through the lens of that term being grabbed by mainstream. So indie rock is actually the sound of a genre more than it is the definition of an artist that's actually independent. And Dispatch is a good example of that because when you listen to their music, it doesn't sound like whatever the early to mid-2000s termed an indie rock sound. They've got more, like you said, the jam band, the reggae influence, you know, the harmonies, things that you really don't think about when you think about indie rock. So ironically, perhaps one of the biggest indie rock bands doesn't sound anything like indie rock. That, that is true from a, a sound. We, we have this stereotype of what indie rock is supposed to be. And it's probably evolved over the years because now independent bands have access to all of the equipment and technology required to make a real polished album. But back in the day, it was probably a lot more challenging as an independent band because it was expensive. And if you didn't have a manager and producers and this big studio to go to to record this sound and and people who knew what the mainstream wanted to hear to critique your sound and, and mold it to become something more than what you could do independently, then I think there are some parallels between what you were saying about indie rock. In a way, that's, that's kind of what independent artists were putting out as a musical sound by, by virtue of having to do that with the equipment that they had and, and the money that they had to do things on their own. So wrapping up the history on Dispatch here, I mentioned they were very active from 1996 until 2002. They, they put out four albums uh, during that time period, Silent Steeples in 1996, which is the album we'll be reviewing today. A fun fact, a side note on that album, it was originally released under the band name One Fell Swoop but there was an already existing band name uh, that was either the same or similar to that that uh, the guys didn't know about and they were forced to make a switch so they put a poll on their website and asked their fans to to vote on a name and that's how dispatch was uh, arrived upon in 1997 they released their second album titled bang bang this is regarded as their most popular album it has the hit single the General, which is the song that got me exposed to Dispatch back in the day. In 1999, they released their third studio album titled Four Day Trials. And then in 2000, they released their fourth studio album, Who Are We Living For? Which would end up being their last studio album they released for over a decade. Because as we mentioned, in 2002, they stopped touring and went their separate ways to start solo projects and other bands. And aside from that concert at the Hatch Shell in 2004, they only did a couple other reunion concerts throughout the 2000s. After that 10-year hiatus from being a band, they decided to get back together. And in 2012, they released their first studio album in 12 years titled Circles Around the Sun, which was received fairly well, but... I don't believe they started touring that much after that. They may have done some shows, but I remember them releasing that album thinking they're back together. It had a little different sound than what I was used to, so 
I was I was a little disappointed, but there were definitely some good songs on there. And then I, I don't remember them really doing a whole lot in the years following that. So I thought maybe they were just getting back together to release one album, but that they weren't coming back together as a very active band. But then they proved me wrong in 2017. They released a really good album titled America Location 12, which got back to a lot of their original sounds. It was very refreshing to hear. And then the following year in 2018, they released another album, Location 13. And they're due to release their seventh studio album this year in 2021 titled Break Our Fall. And a lot of those songs have already been released. Definitely uh, look for that see what they're doing today. So for a, a band that was super active late 90s, early 2000s to breaking up and going their separate ways and putting on a, a concert that they termed the last dispatch and really held held strongly that that was the case, that they weren't getting back together. For whatever reason, as they matured and moved through their lives, their musical careers, they decided they needed to get back together. And now it seems like there's nothing stopping them. They're putting out a ton of music again and touring, keeping the dispatch alive. Awesome. Well, thanks for giving the history on the band. With all the ins and outs of it, it's awesome that they've maintained an output of music, even with those hiatuses in there and losing Pete along the way. It sounds like they're still putting out music, and I didn't realize there was one coming out this year too, so I'll look out for that. Yeah, that's right. Pete left the band in 2019. So unfortunately, when I saw Dispatch live in the fall of 2019, Pete wasn't there, and I didn't get to see him live. But I think he was involved with their 2012, 2017, and 18 albums. Should we get into the album that started it all here? Yeah, without further ado, let's introduce to you Silent Steeples. Track one is sort of the title track, just called Steeples. So this is an interesting song to start off the album. You know, one one thing that's been awesome for me through this process is that I, I've never, aside from a few songs that were real meaningful to me, I've never really taken the time to break down the lyrics and figure out what all this music was about. You know, I, I know the words, I can sing along to majority of these songs, and I, I've listened to it so much over the years, but... I haven't taken the time to learn the backstories. And and this is one that has a couple different interpretations uh, that you can read about online from different people's perspectives. What did you make of this song? My initial impressions, since I didn't have any backstory to this band other than whatever you had told me, and I'm looking at the album cover, and it's it looks like a boy on a boat. It's just a silhouette. But, you know, I'm using that as kind of like a visual as I'm putting this album on. So I've got that in in my head as I'm pushing play on this. And the first words are, I heard a story about a boy who was swept off the deck. So I'm already in kind of a nautical place to this song. And so going from there, you know, it sounds like that's what happens. This boy gets swept off the deck. The tide gets high. He fights against it. But it wasn't quite that easy. It says, the sea would not so much as reply in verse 2, kind of basically sounding like he's going to lose this battle. So once again, instead of rolling over, 
he fights harder, maybe not to save his life this time, but he's yelling to other ships. He's trying to warn others about the same fate. And he says a, a common sailor's phrase, red sky at night, sailors take delight, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. So just warning them of this impending treacherous sea, using his last breath to help somebody else. Did you read about the religious interpretations and the one about the song potentially being about bullying and a boy being targeted? Yeah, yeah. That was really interesting and kind of hard, hard to follow. As I was saying before, I never really dove into these lyrics and I'm reading about what people are interpreting them on this first track and I'm already f- floored by the fact that I I guess I, I knew nothing about this song other than the words and the fact that I liked the music. But there's a couple interesting interpretations you can read about on online. The, the, the one about bullying and that the, the boy is being targeted and he's struggling uh, to assert himself. Maybe he's out at, at sea feeling alone, feeling like there's no way out. And then there's the, the religious interpretation. Well, a couple. There's a, a pro interpretation about uh, the boy representing Jesus being swept into a sea of humanity. And then there's a, a contra religious interpretation that the boy could represent a kid who discovers religion and the sea represents God and the boy has remained doubtful, not drowning into a religious fervor as I, as I read online. And that the symbol of the water could also represent the Christian sacrament of baptism. The contra interpretation that would be a violent baptism of sorts where the speaker isn't pulled from the water but rather left there to drown yeah i did read those interpretations i was taking it more as the anti-religion interpretation and i can't remember if i came to that before or after i read some of the interpretations online i can't remember if that was my own or just the one that resonated the most with me after reading it but you know, first of all, the title of the album, Silent Steeples, to me kind of reminded me of like your place of religion not really listening to you or, or not being understanding of your feelings. So I kind of was biased to think of it that way from the beginning. And then lines there in the chorus, did you ever want to know me? To me, it was like the boy lost at sea or the, or the person pursuing religion that didn't ever feel like they reached it yelling out to God saying, did you really ever want me in the first place? Did you ever feel like I could? Like, was it even ever possible for me to get there by my own trying? That's kind of how I interpreted that. Yeah, that that could be him asking God or potentially the the church, the congregation, the people grooming him to fit into this system. Did you ever really care about who I am, my feelings as an individual, or do you simply want me to be a part of this bigger organization? Within the framework of that interpretation, by the time we got to verse three, it kind of felt like to me he had made peace with it because he says, and if we are to die, well, it wouldn't be that bad because the boy in the wave said he'd give us everything he had. So I guess I just kind of took it as him letting go of some organized religion and just deciding that 
he doesn't have the answers, but that's okay. That might just be a framework based on kind of my own progression with religion in my life, because I think I went through all those things myself, struggling with it, and then at some point finding peace and feeling okay with the fact that I didn't have all those those answers buttoned up. Yeah, it's interesting how when lyrics are abstract, we, we tend to find ways to make them make sense for our own lives and what we want them to mean to us. A hundred percent. And there's some other songs in this album, I think, that speak to that same place for me. And it's interesting because you talked in the history about how these three guys had some differences in terms of who they were as people. This song was, I believe, written by Chad. He's at least the one that's credited with this one, if you look in the liner notes. And so I don't think he is a religious guy, just based on watching some of the documentaries. I could be wrong about that. Brad definitely is. And so I was also kind of giving the benefit of the doubt there, thinking if this came from Chad, maybe he had similar thoughts like I did as opposed to Brad. But then it did give me a pause a little bit because also in the documentary, there's a point that they reference a song that I want to say maybe Pete wrote that Brad took issue with the lyrics on. I don't think it was an anti-religion situation. I think it was more just like something that morally he might have objected to. But I could imagine if this was an anti-religion song Brad might speak up and be like, I don't want that on our album, you know, either pro-religion or neutral if, if I'm going to put my name on it. Yeah, so I don't right. know. I wonder how some of those things might have come up. It's also possible that this song was written and it had multiple interpretations. And that's where both Brad and Chad said, all right, because it's not overt, to me, mm-hmm. it means this. To you, maybe it means something else, but let's put sure. it out there and, and it's going to mean whatever it means for the listener. I don't know. I'd be interesting to ask them. Yeah, definitely. It's... It's easy to think of it in a religious context because of the title of the song, Steeples, and thinking about that. And then as you brought up the 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 title of, of the album, Silent Steeples, indicating that something is not being said or something is not being heard, that it's not doing what it's supposed to do. So there's, there's clearly some religious context there, or, or could be anyway. And despite that struggle, whatever that is, that that narrator the character is going through there I, I agree with you by the end he's kind of accepted it by by saying sail on we're going to keep moving forward regardless of what's what's going on here but uh, that could also be applied to the bullying interpretation that you know people are often told you know suck it up be tough just deal with it and uh, maybe that's what that's representing potentially there as well Yeah, were you reading it one way or the other? Did you just kind of read there's multiple interpretations and leave yourself open? Did it? Did one version speak more to you? I unfortunately read through all the interpretations on the internet before trying to figure it out myself, so I was already biased. I never really came up with my own uh, interpretation of it. Whether you apply a specific context of life or something overt, I mean, there are some, some unifying themes. I was really drawn to the line about tracing that scar. Go on, trace that scar like we did 10 years before. Oh, right. You know, trace the scar, remind yourself 
not to let this happen again. If there was some sort of trauma from religion or bullying or however you want to interpret the song, that that was just a line to say, don't let that, remember what bit you so it doesn't bite you again. Mm-hmm. I was drawn to that line because it did kind of stand out amongst the rest. To go on and trace that scar like we did ten years before. And then musically, I thought they did a great job too of it being a, a little sparing at the beginning. And if you think about if you were on a boat somewhere, you may not have electric guitars and a whole drum kit and stuff. So it's like voice, acoustic guitar, and the djembe starting off this song. And it did sound like something you might recreate if you were out to sea, just playing some music to pass the time. Yeah, the lyrics that definitely were complemented by the music. I really liked that guitar part around the, the 240 mark. There's the part about uh, it's a silent steeple that carries us down, that being kind of an oppressive action. So the idea that you know, whatever's happening, whether it's a boy being bullied or somebody struggling with, with their faith or being accepted by the church, the steeple's representing the masses, a group of people or an organization, and the fact that they're silent, they're not speaking up, and that that action carries them down. The person is um, being oppressed or not uh, helped forward through this struggle by nature of the fact that the people they need to be speaking are silent. Yeah, I thought of that, back to the nautical theme, this as like an anchor carrying you down or dragging you down to the bottom yeah. and you're trying to swim against. That, that was the visual I got with that. Well, I think that was a great way to start off the album. Should we move on to track two? Yeah, definitely a good way to start off off the album. It uh, got got me thinking right away, trying to understand these lyrics, and and got me intrigued for the rest of the album. Because as I had mentioned earlier, I, I've never really dove into all of these lyrics and and really tried to understand the message behind a lot of these songs on the album. So let's move on to track number two, "Past the Falls." Will you follow me? All right, Trevor, I know you said this is one of your favorite songs on the album, and you have an interesting interpretation on it that you have been keeping a a secret from me until we we do this podcast here. So I'm really excited to hear your take on this song. This was my favorite one. I'll, I'll put that stamp on there and say this was my favorite song. This one just drew me in from the beginning. Starts off musically with that you know, rain sound or, or perhaps trying to emulate the sound of a waterfall with that rain stick. And it kind of has like a mystical lead in with the percussion here as well. This one was written by Brad and sung by him as well. I think you can hear the difference in vocal styling from the first track. We've mentioned how the first track had all of these different interpretations online. I really couldn't find anything specific to this one. So I was creating my own interpretation from the get-go here. And this was before I had learned anything about Brad being a religious person. So I wasn't reading it within that context. And to me, overarching, this song was like a story of two young people in kind of a coming-of-age situation, 
that first verse gives the impression of this young couple. She's excited. It's a gesture as old as time itself in a way. It's the Capulets and the Montagues, you know, Romeo and Juliet sitting outside her windowsill. Sits beneath her windowsill. She awaits the magic in his hand. It gives the impression that he's at her house and maybe she's in a more stable place, metaphorically. It says the wind blew and her hair stood still as he sat beneath her windowsill. So he's out there courting her trying to get her to come outside, and she's in a place where even the wind isn't disrupting her, so something as gentle as a wind that could move her hair isn't taking place. The wind blows, but her hair stays still. Walks her out into the night Takes her in a different light And then once she walks out into the night with him, he takes her in a different light, and you could take that as maybe that's the you know, first time they sleep together or they're romantic with each other in some way. Her eyes divert to the water beneath his feet, kind of saying that at some point now she's seeing him for who he really is, so she starts noticing that as stable as she is in life, he's in flux. Boy wakes up and runs outside To find that all is fear And then so the next morning after they've spent the night together, he wakes up and runs outside to find all his fears have died. In this tryst that they've had together, he's feeling safe with her for the first time, maybe. Mm -hmm. And all the shells are laying upon the sand is like the tide that's gone out. So all of the water that's maybe covering up the true elements of who he is are now exposed. And so she's seeing all these things that were laying underneath the surface for him. She kicks a rock along that road and stood still while the story was told. So she kicks a rock along that road and stood while the story was told. So she's really analyzing now these things that he's been hiding from her. She kicks the rock or kicks the shell and she's listening to him tell his story of who he really is. They're, they're really becoming intimate now emotionally. And he says, do you believe in me? So he's really hoping that she will accept him now that she really understands these rocks and shells that are he had been hiding from her in the world. I really like that. Yeah, I, I thought about a relationship too with with the opening line, the wind blew and her hair stood still. I'm, I'm picturing somebody in the, in the window of a second or third floor. The boy is, is standing there outside on, on the ground looking up toward her in awe of the fact that she's so beautiful in the window her her hair uh is perfect it's not even blowing by the wind and potentially to piggyback off what you were saying about him having water underneath his feet and not being very stable maybe he's out there struggling and the wind is blowing him around and and uh the wind also represents some type of chaos uh, in his life and and there she is you know metaphorically speaking there's things blowing around here she is standing there. Nothing's bothering her. Hair's totally still. You know, he's just in awe of uh, that difference in how, how things are going for him versus what he sees in her. There's also a, a religious context to this one as well. You can interpret it 
little differently. The line, she awaits the magic in his hands, uh, could be referring to God or Jesus and her you know, waiting for him or them to, to show her the way, um, show her the light. He walks her out into the night and takes her in a different light. It could be this woman character uh, first being exposed to um, a higher power and the water beneath his feet being a reference to Jesus walking on water. And then also the the boy could be a, a separate character as well. It could be representing a couple different people who are finding their way through God. Boy wakes up and runs outside to find that all his fears have died. Maybe that's the moment where he believes in God and he knows that he doesn't have to be afraid of anything anymore because there's somebody who has a plan for him and who's watching out for him. So now all of a sudden he's not afraid to go outside anymore. He lets his guard down and, and lives his life. And so if you, if you take it that way, you can put a religious spin on this one as well. And since it was written by Brad, there's, there's a possibility that that was intentional as well. But then, you know, as you, as you mentioned, Brad being pretty in touch with his, his faith and outspoken about that and some of the documentaries we saw and, and Chad, uh, making some comments that potentially that was that was a point of contention or, or or a difference in them as individuals that that maybe led to them going their separate ways. Maybe this song too was was acceptable for the album by all all three of them because the lyrics were abstract enough that you could you could interpret it as a relationship uh, similar to what we were talking about with the first song. If potentially it was about religion, especially if it was anti-religion, Brad would probably speak out against that and maybe that's the case here too where the lyrics meant something to the to the writer and the lead singer but they may have been abstract enough that they were accepted by the others and didn't give across too overt of a message yeah if i had to place money now that i understand a little bit more about who brad is i probably put it on maybe he meant this as more of a religious context it didn't strike me that way just myself like you said, you had to somehow insert a third character into this, and it didn't differentiate when it's saying he as like the boy versus now trying to think of he as being Jesus. So you almost had to shoehorn a third person into this story. I still think it's cleaner the way that I interpreted it, so that's how I'm going to keep it. I like your interpretation better, and I think when I listen to the song, that's it's probably what I'm going to think of too, because I, I thought of the the girl in the window with her beautiful hair and immediately made me think of a boy envisioning being with her and, and the, the rest of the lyrics can all stem from that. Yeah, that's what I felt like it was, just intimacy in general. You know, that obviously it starts off with the she awaits the magic in his hands and that classic image of the gentleman caller at the woman's windowsill again as old as Shakespeare times. But after that happens, it sounds like it's more like emotional intimacy with her really like understanding what's underneath the surface for him as I thought it was really cool the picture that it painted and I like that and the sound of it I think I like Brad's voice maybe the best too it just feels like it's like I don't know a little bit smoother and sometimes I like the affect on Chad's voice and sometimes it felt a little bit more forced to me I suppose so overall I think I just thought I liked the sound of this one the best this was my favorite track Brad's voice is a little more clean and and poignant uh, in a way. It's something that always finds its way through. Even if he's singing background and he's harmonizing, it's subtle enough that it doesn't overpower the lead singer, but you always hear it. It's, it's always kind of resonating there because it, it draws you in. It's definitely unique. 
that's not to take anything away from Chad, who's a great singer in his own right, and, and Pete. Pete has a, a beautiful voice as well. But there is something about Brad's voice that that really draws me in as well. Maybe maybe the fact that I really appreciate harmonies, and I, I love harmonies, and Brad does a great job harmonizing on a lot of the songs. Musically, I wanted to add, this is the, the first song that we really hear their harmonies as well. Um, we'll talk about that a lot in some other songs. The three of them like to do rounds and, and harmonize a lot of their music. And then that that music breakdown around the the 240 mark. Musically, it exposes us to a lot of their talents and and lyrically another one that requires some some thought to interpret and has a lot of depth to it. So I think we're ready to move on to track three. This one is titled Water Stop. I had an interesting interpretation of this song that I'm sure is completely incorrect, but there are just a couple lines that made me my head go that way. I'll let you talk about what you thought it was first because I think I'm totally off, but the first thing I want to start off just saying in terms of leading into this was when will the water stop it sounded like a bad thing it sounded like the water sounding like when will this trial end yeah i think you're spot on there i I was envisioning the water representing a gloomy dreary day the obvious answer is that it's raining it's pouring and when will the water stop but metaphorically as you said that can often mean that something bad is happening and it keeps happening and and you wonder when that storm will pass I think the water could potentially represent tears as well. A failed love of sorts or a, a challenging relationship. The water represents the tears and wondering when the pain will stop, when they'll get past this difficult uh, relationship that potentially didn't work out. Here was where my brain was going. If you take the first line, when you dove drunk with sleep in your eyes as literal, I thought of it as maybe somebody that had a diving accident. So maybe they were actually drunk or too tired or whatever, and they were diving. You stole what was left of the sky. You injured yourself. You, in my interpretation, this person is injured and actually in a coma. So here, here's where I oh, went wow. with this one. <laughs> when it says, turning to fall, I owed all my life spinning pictures, blue screens, and red kisses. To me, I interpreted that as somebody that was in a coma, so it's like lasting into fall now. When, when will the water stop? Like, when, when is this person going to wake up from the coma? And then the spinning pictures would be like, maybe how somebody that was in a coma was experiencing reality in and out of consciousness or they have enough consciousness to s- sense something, but it's like spinning pictures. 
And then blue screens would be like the monitors keeping this person alive or monitoring their vitals. And then red kisses, of course, just like loved ones coming in and kissing them. And then the, the hung your head in a forgotten stare, again, is somebody that's like, you know, the lights are on, but nobody's home, so to speak. It's somebody that they're waiting to see if they're going to snap out of this. Hung your head in a forgotten stare, and I thought, and I thought. Oh, wow. Interesting. I'm 100% positive that's not what they meant, but that's where my brain went. So I just decided to like build upon that. What I, what I thought about on that opening line when you dove, I was picturing somebody diving onto the bed or, or falling down or, or collapsing, you know, drunk with sleep in your eyes. Somebody who's, who's tired or worn out, not necessarily drunk or intoxicated, but drunk with sleep in their eyes. They're exhausted. They need to fall asleep and they're going to dive down. Potentially that's onto the floor, onto the bed. And then the line you stole, what was left of the sky I was thinking the sky represents the day in this period of time. Maybe they're having a long talk and they're trying to work through something difficult and it becomes too much for her and she just falls asleep because it's too much to handle. So you stole what was left of the sky. I was thinking of the day of the time that they had together. She kind of stole that by saying, I'm done. I'm going to dive into my drunken sleep or stupor or whatever. Maybe it's a little out of order in that sense, but hung your hair in a forgotten stare, kind of just glazed over, staring off into space, done with whatever they're trying to to figure out. And he thought, you know, when will the water stop? Will it pour all day? Maybe that's a reference to himself. Maybe he's the one crying. And then turning to fall out of our lives. To me, that represents that they're growing apart. The spinning pictures. I'm not sure what red kisses means exactly, but the blue screams is a a British reference um, to scream blue murder uh, means to scream, yell, or complain in a very loud or angry way. Oh, is it blue screams or blue screens? I thought it was screams. Ah, okay. Lyric Genius says screen. Oh, really? Like a blue screen. Oh, I'm not sure. I might have to go check that out now. I was just thinking... There's this couple that's screaming and yelling that maybe maybe the song is out of order, but that they're definitely in turmoil and one of them is kind of given up. The other one is maybe wanting to fight and force them to keep talking, but she's washed up on his shore. There's no time to get into his life. That lyric made me think she's kind of caught up in her own life and not able to really join forces with him. Uh, there's even that line that can be taken literally you sank into yourself and I got lost somewhere in between, you know, the the guy saying that he got lost in this idea of being with her, but she was too sunk in herself, you know, literally kind of wrapped up, whether that's an attack saying that you were selfish and, and, uh, closed off or self-centered, or maybe it's just that she was dealing with some, some troubles or something difficult that was making the, the water pour all day that, uh, she wasn't able to, be present for him and you know maybe he's kind of understanding that uh, to some degree i'm sure your interpretation is closer to what they meant and i could see that she's washed up on his shore there's no time to get into his life somebody being washed up on the shore fits your description of like somebody that's gone through a bunch of turmoil i mean if you're washed up on shore kind of like back to the first song it's somebody that's thrown off a boat and somehow managed Mm -hmm. to be washed back up to shore so it's like she needs all kinds of care at that point. Somebody that's washed up on the shore needs your help. So there's no time to get into his life. There's there's no 
time for her to ask what he needs out of this relationship. She's going through so much that his needs and concerns have to be put on the back burner. She's washed up on his shore. There's no time to get into his life. She's washed up on his shore. There's no time to get into his life. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think the, the one line that really stands out to me that depicts maybe he understands and he's willing to be patient is the part after it says when will the water stop will it pour all day when will the water stop i know that you can't say yeah yeah so he's you know he's understanding that like okay this, this is, is tough difficult. for me yeah, but like it's not your not fault an obvious end point. yeah yeah like we, we gotta let you, you might have, have to time. go through this for a long time and that, yeah that makes sense i like so he's kind of stuck he's not he's not very happy with the situation but at the same time you know, he's a little empathetic of whatever's going on, whatever's making this water pour. So blue scream is a British term? Yeah, there's a British term I found to scream blue murder. Ah, interesting. Uh, and I, I don't know, maybe that's maybe that's similar to scream and bloody murder. That's all I could find. I wasn't sure what the red kisses represented unless that was just to say, hey, this is about a relationship. And like there's enjoyable times, there's kisses, but there's also blue screens. So there's the, the spinning pictures, spinning pictures of the enjoyment, the love and care of being in a relationship and kissing, but then also the blue screams of yelling and complaining and being angry and getting upset with each other. And those pictures are just spinning around. Totally. I, I think those three phrases together are a perfect little snapshot of what a relationship is if it's passionate and both the love and the anger if, it, if it's yeah. screams not screen a blue scream and a red kiss right are Emotions both are contrasting on, on parts both of, of an emotional relationship mm -hmm. yeah and then spinning pictures yeah. yeah just like one one image after the next and this is a, a song written and 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 led on vocals by by pete francis and he's he's been known as writer of a lot of love songs and um, sharing some deep feelings there. So that's another piece of evidence to support that it's probably about some type of relationship. This was a highlight song for me musically too on the outro. All those slides and picking I thought were really great. I really like how it opens. Pete's voice is really mysterious, almost like he's kind of whispering and wanting you to really pay attention. That part's pretty cool. And then Brad on the harmonies, we've mentioned how good of a job he does. When you don't, drunk with sleep in your eyes, you stole. Yeah, you're right. The what first line's close at that point, mm -hmm. kind of painting that yeah. picture of intimacy in some yeah, way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a good song. This one means a lot more to me now than it ever had. I could always sing the words to this song because it was it was one that I really enjoyed. Vocally, it's just a fun song to sing, but I, I never really thought about what it meant. So, you know, going going back through this morning and listening to the album again as I was getting the day started, it's it's been elevated to a whole nother level. And I think that's really cool. That's a really cool part of what we're doing on this podcast and what I encourage everybody to do for your 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 favorite bands or albums or songs that are out there. Challenge yourself to go read the lyrics, study it, think about it, and see if you actually know what it's about. Maybe it'll mean something more. Yeah, we're just starting this journey in a lot of ways, especially with 
how much time we take in between putting out episodes and the limited number of albums that we jump into. But so far in doing that and revisiting albums that I'd listened to a lot, some of them I maybe I had unpacked lyrically and then others I hadn't. So far, doing that's connected me to the album more. It'll be interesting to see if there's ever an album where you know you love the sound and every time you listen to it, you go back to where you were at that point in your life. But once you start dissecting it more or really unpacking it, you're like, wow, there's really not a whole lot here. I wonder if we'll ever run into a situation where we're like, I actually think I liked it better. I should have left well enough alone or something like that. And if it does, we say, okay, that's cool. That's nice to know. But this song will continue meaning what it does to me because that's that's how I interpreted it. And yeah, like we've talked about many times, once that music is out there, it's no longer the artist. It's for the, the listener and, and their interpretation. So we'll see, we'll see when we uh, cross that road, because I'm sure we will at some point. Yeah, I think so. Well, let's go on to track four. Yeah, this is a good one. Track four is called Hey, Hey. Back. Cause you don't seem like you care And if I would fall back You don't seem like you care Fall down your back Fall down your back Fall down your back You don't seem like you care Musically, this might be my favorite song on the album Simply for the vocals, I, I really like the harmonies on the opening line with the hey hey's and how they blend all that together you can really pick out their voices and see how how they mesh well yeah i think on the outro of the song before and then coming into this one you're seeing a lot more of that harmony lyrically it's a great song as well and there's a lot to unpack there what did you think of this one trevor yeah in some ways i thought this was a pretty straightforward one lyrically there it sounded like the story was just of this guy wanting to impress this girl and then he kind of chickens out. So she's coming up and he's like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll say hi a different time. You know, I, I got to figure out a way to get my courage up. And then the chorus is kind of encouraging this character and then maybe the listener as a whole. Be bold. Say what you mean. Question who you are. Take risks, essentially, as I thought what this song was about. But the background example was just a simple story of a boy trying to get the nerves to talk to a girl say what you want say what you mean i really like that part about say what you want say what you mean question yourself are you really what you seem that part musically is is beautiful for some reason that stanza has always resonated with me i've always thought about that questioning are you are you really the image uh, that you portray are you are you really who you say you are are you really what you dream are you living your life you know whether your outward expression of you is is connected with who you are uh, deep down inside and what you want that, that that's always been something that i i've kind of stopped and had to pause listening to this song then from a a, a relationship as the song is, is likely about you know it's kind of asking somebody else to question them is this really what you want is this is this what what you seem is what you're trying to to do you know it's kind of putting the pressure on somebody to figure out you know if they want to be with them and what that's supposed to look like 
Yeah, and I guess the way that it does flip that on its head a little bit in this song is you, for the first couple of verses, assume that the point is, you know, be bold, question who you are, do it, do what you want, and in simple terms in this song, you know, talk to the girl. But at the very end, he kind of admits that maybe that's not what he wants. Maybe that's not him. So questioning himself might be saying, is that actually what's most important to me or important to life anyway? Because he says, maybe there's a reason for that. Even if I caught you, I'd throw you back. So even though this girl's not paying attention to him, he's questioning himself, he's questioning his intentions or his motivations, saying, this isn't really that important anyway. I'd probably, I don't know, mess this up or, or choose not to pursue it if I got it in the first place. Yeah, I think that's the point of realization when he starts to see that maybe she doesn't care about him as much as he cares about her. Maybe she doesn't want that relationship as much as he does. And I'm not so sure if he's giving up on the idea of being with her or if he's simply protecting himself, trying to convince himself that that isn't what he wants anymore anyway. You know, yeah, even if I caught you, I'd throw you back saying you're, you're, you're no longer what I, what I want. I'm, I'm not sure if he really believes that or if that's just kind of a defense mechanism. That's a good point. I'm not sure if maybe the chorus is kind of like an omniscient character and not the narrator themselves, kind of saying, go for it, question yourself, do what you want to do. Maybe the narrator bargaining with himself and convincing himself that's not what he want is actually not an example of him questioning himself and be, being who he really is supposed to be. Maybe he's still kind of holding back there. I thought of it as, you know, him, him hanging on to a relationship and trying to win this person back and that he's just trying to find the courage to reach out to her, speak up, say something that maybe they're on a break. Um, and you know, maybe this has happened again. Maybe they've been together for a long time and they keep going through this cycle of, you know, fading in and out of, of love and, and him being stuck in his head and the internal struggle of wanting to be with her and always feeling like he has to reach out and, you know, make the move to go talk with her, to, to be with her. And he's just not really sure what to say. And he's not really sure how to get inside her head. Um, he's going to have to talk smooth and he's going to have to walk a step closer. And my, one of my favorite parts musically, be real cool, real cool, real cool, real cool. Damn, real cool. <laughs> but she slides on by not even a second look. She took the bait right off the hook. So it sounds like he's trying to put something out there, but she's just not giving him a chance. And this is one of my favorite parts musically too, because it, it, it says a lot from the story too, but there's a lot of things. You don't know, you don't care, you don't want to see. You know, there's this gradual buildup of, of this forceful singing or singing with intent. And you can tell he's a little upset when he's saying those things. Almost like... He thinks that she thinks this is easy for him, that he's tough and he can move on, but really he's he's struggling and he's not really sure how to tell her that, how to get through to her. By the end of the song, you know, he hasn't he hasn't figured out what he wants because he goes back and forth between saying fall back, fall, fall back, you don't seem like you care, and then it even shortens to fall back you don't and doesn't even finish it still in that hourglass stuck in his head of going back and forth between 
wanting to fall back in love with her, with her, but also thinking that she doesn't care and just repeating that back and forth and not really having a clear answer. And then the song ends the same way it started with, hey, 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 yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't sound like there's any resolution to the story. Hey, 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 Yeah, as you read it all out loud again, I think he is bargaining with himself there. And the you don't seem like you care part, it seems like he's like almost making excuses you're trying to he's trying to save face a little bit even though all these voices are within his own head you know outwardly nobody's probably perceiving any of this but i think if she did take the hook as that line said he might not be so critical of her but since she didn't he's blaming her instead of himself saying like oh you just don't understand me then maybe he's not questioning himself and he's not really what he dreams or what he should be here so maybe that that line in the chorus is more of like an omniscient voice against how this person mm-hmm. is acting as opposed to the narrator coming yeah. to some sort of conclusion for himself. I like that because it, yeah, I mean, it could be the narrator doing some deep soul searching, asking himself if he's really what he wants, what he dreams. And if he's questioning that, or he could be questioning her too, or maybe some omniscient viewpoint, some third person challenging both of them to question who they are what they want and what they're doing, what they dream about. Real cool, real cool, real cool, real cool, dang, real cool. Yeah, the, the line, the real cool, real cool, dang, real cool part <laughs> wasn't my favorite. I was like, no. oh my gosh. But maybe it was <laughs> supposed like it. to be like a little cringeworthy. And, and you got to remember, you, it's, it's the 90s. You probably. feel a little like embarrassed for this <laughs> guy with that line, perhaps. So maybe that's a better, it paints a picture better than anything else of like, how this guy is not he doesn't he doesn't stand a chance basically (laughs) i remember in that documentary i don't know if you remember but they're all sitting around singing this song yeah i do and one of them kind of makes fun of that line too where like they're singing that and then i think somebody says like this would be a good song if like you wrote it in high school or something like that (laughs) Do do you remember that yeah yeah something like that right well i think that's supposed to be the perspective of somebody like you know, nervous and, and shy or not really sure what to, to say or do, just really questioning who he is and just like, be cool, be cool, you know, yeah, be real cool. Right. So, yeah, I think it, I think it depicts the message that was trying to go across there. Well, should we move on to the next one? Yeah, this is, this is one of my favorites, uh, probably second favorite on the album. Track number five is titled Flying Horses. You know, this was one of my favorite tracks on the album too probably top two or three for me and it grabbed me from first listen sometimes one of those songs grows on you but this was one of my favorites from the get-go, and it sounds like it's maybe a fan favorite, too. I know you sent me a little clip of the concert that you went to, them closing with this song. And at that point, it's 2019, I think, so they've got quite a arsenal of songs they could choose from. So for this one to be the closing song, 
told me that it was a fan favorite or, or a favorite of the band. I liked bringing in the harmonica on this one. I think for me, I noticed for an album as a whole, I liked this album better when they brought in more instrumentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got a little bit away from the just acoustic because sometimes when it was just the acoustic, it, it felt a little too stripped down and maybe kind of like almost like kind of campfire. Mm-hmm. I think, again, if I heard it live, I might feel differently. But for an album, when they started bringing in more in- instrumentation, I liked that. And the harmonica to start the song off, I thought was really cool. You said that's Brad? Yeah, that's Brad. And they're really known for bringing in a lot of different instruments. In fact, when they when they tour, when they're live, they bring in a lot of guys from other bands, whether it's somebody they're touring with or just a friend in the area that they know that they've played with and bring a lot of instruments on stage. So they're, they're really a true jam band through and through uh but this this album silent steeples was the only one that was that was really stripped down and acoustic and i'm not sure if that was by intent or going back to what we were talking about being an independent band and just maybe um not having the the space or equipment or technology to or the studio to really make a you know, like a good full band sound maybe they decided to go with this instead or maybe their sound evolved a little bit but uh, the next album uh, after this that they released titled Bang Bang uh, picks it up a lot more. There's a lot more instruments and, and uh, rock elements. It's, it sounds more like a complete band a lot than a, than a stripped down um, lyrical focused uh, collection of songs. So that is an interesting point you make and something unique about this particular album from their entire discography. It's the only one that's really like this that I know of. And I thought it was a highlight lyrically as well. I think that they're at their best when they're telling those little stories that create a little world for you to step in. A lot of times they are wrapping all of that up in kind of like the previous song of the chorus saying, question yourself. This one have an overarching message of materialism and and trying to distance yourself from those things. I think Chad is the main writer for this one. I believe so. That kind of fits his archetype, at least in terms of what I picked up on from watching some of those documentaries. He's kind of the free spirit Mm-hmm. And again, being an independent yeah. band, this song kind of fits with them. So in a lot of ways, I thought this was kind of dispatched in a nutshell with the message of this one. I, I totally agree. This is storytelling at its finest. This is a true folk song. Every verse tells you something something new. It adds to the story until the end when it all comes together. Let's get into that. As you mentioned, it, it starts out talking about a couple different forms of of beauty. It says the river of doubt gave birth to a beautiful stone and in my hands I held it and I knew I was on my own. So I picked it up and I held it to the sky and I knew in my reflection I was all alone. The river of doubt gave birth to a, a beautiful stone and in my hand I held it and I knew I was on my own. So I picked it up and I held it to the sky. And in my reflection, I knew I was all alone. Yeah. So the, the first form of beauty is the idea of, of a stone, which is, is found in isolation, and that that is something that's beautiful and powerful about nature. So it's the, the love of nature and the appreciation for something naturally, organically occurring that's tangible but has more value. And then the second form of beauty is that he sees a girl with the most beautiful hair 
she has it wrapped around her for clothes. So he, he sees this beautiful girl, uh, presumably naked, but covered up, wrapped in her beautiful hair from head to toe. And he asks her for a lock of her hair and she complies after leaving gorgeous footsteps in the sand as if she didn't care. So she's got all this hair and, and she can spare a strand of hair, a lock of hair for him. But, you know, that's no big deal to her. But but to him, it's it's something amazing because it, it's another form that represents beauty. So it opens up the, the, the song with seeing and uh, having tangible objects that, that represent uh, beauty. Yeah, yeah. Then I saw this girl with the most beautiful hair she had had. Wrapped around her for clothes she did not wear I asked her for a lock and she complied After leaving gorgeous footsteps in the sand Yeah, both things that he can possess and take with him And she's on a completely different wavelength She doesn't even have, she doesn't even own clothes And then she leaves gorgeous footprints in the sand So even the footprints she leaves, he's almost like coveting as an object. And I thought, you know, the sand, of course, is going to erase those. So true to the character of this girl, even the footsteps she leaves are beautiful, but temporary. They're going to be erased by the time the next wave comes in. But the narrator is still stuck on the objects, whether it's the lock of hair, the rock, or even the footprints. I'm not sure, but I, I think he might be dreaming. Did you pick up on that? I mean, only based on the fact that it just feels like a fantasy situation there, but I, I guess I didn't pick up on it being spelled out. What made you think that? Well, the next line, it says, she was the prettiest girl I ever saw. The stone lay still without a flaw. The feelings I had defied the law. Oh, as the as I came to. And then he comes to and he sees a badger and a one-eyed toad. They didn't say a word. They just looked at me with that wise old look of the old. The wise old look of the old uh, and these, these characters, the badger and the one-eyed toad, come back later basically representing this idea that there's always going to be somebody more wise than you taking an omniscient view overseeing what's happening and whether or not they're telling you something or overtly or or simply being that presence of somebody who knows something more than you do uh, that that has that wisdom and knows that eventually you'll you'll experience whatever they have that allows you to see something beyond what you do so whether that's the the stone or the girl or whatever this person, this character is, is thinking when he sees these beautiful objects, there's some sort of detachment from reality in these old wise characters, the badger and the one-eyed toad. They don't say a word, they just look at him and, you know, probably shrug their shoulders and are just kind of like, you know, you'll learn, you'll figure it out eventually. Kind of thing. Totally. I, I felt like they were a representation of the reality that he comes to later in the song that we'll get to. But in this moment, they've got that stoic wisdom. And I mm -hmm. think I read, too, that the Badger and One-Eyed Toad could be a reference to a children's book called The Wind in the Willows. I saw that. And it's a novel that is the escapades of impulsive Mr. Toad and the wise hermit, which was Mr. Badger. So okay. I don't know if he was referencing that or not, but it fits the narrative of this song. Yeah, and I, I think they're supposed to represent a, 
a more experienced understanding of of beauty and like like you said the the singer slowly comes to see more than what he initially did uh, by the end of the song or maybe they they are contrasting one of them like like the badger was the wise hermit in the novel and mr toad was the impulsive one Mm -hmm. so maybe the narrator of the song is supposed to be the toad and then the badger so when he looks out he just kind of sees both versions of what he could be one's the materialistic impulsive person and the other one's this stoic wise person that understands what really matters yeah so then the the character comes to and he goes down to town what does he get into when he goes down to town so there it says he finds his favorite merry-go-round where magic horses fly (laughs) i was reading that this is a real place perhaps too in the center of downtown oak bluffs which is a town on martha's vineyard which is somewhere there on the East Coast, close to them. I know they're Vermont and Boston. I can't remember where this Martha's Vineyard was, if it's... I can't recall. But that was really cool for me to hear that this is actually based on a real place where they grew up. Yeah, it's called the Flying Horses Carousel, and it's America's oldest carousel. The riders have this informal competition where they would reach out and grab these steel rings. And if you grab the last ring, then you get a free ride. So another little representation of like, here in this beautiful place, you're enjoying yourself. What you really should be focused on maybe is living in the moment and enjoying the ride, perhaps. Right. But this person's fixated on grabbing this ring. He just wants that possession. And the ring is made out of brass, which is important for another Mm -hmm. line coming up in the song. Before we get to that part, though, I looked up Martha's Vineyard. It's it's an island that sits in the Atlantic, uh, just south of Cape Cod, so it's off off the Massachusetts uh, area. Yeah, so close to where they would have mm-hmm. formed, where their formation would have been. So then the song goes on to talk about how the character steals this ring from the flying horses. And he, he can't begin to explain how, but he stole a ring from the flying horses and it's all rusty now. So I'm not sure if he, if he, if he cheated in the game instead of being the last one and, and getting it, somehow he, he stole it or something. Yeah, I didn't, that, that didn't occur to me that maybe he did it that way. Well, the, the idea of saying he stole it instead of saying I won it, that, that somehow he came upon this ring not really the way you're supposed to come about it and then uh, come to find out it ends up becoming all rusty anyway. Okay, yeah, I could see how that fits in there. And then, of course, it, with it becoming rusty, another nod to the fact that possessions, the worth of possessions are not the most important thing, that they lose their value or at least in this case, lose their mm-hmm. value over time or that's not the most important thing to be focused on. Yeah, and and uh, this is the third representation of beauty, the third form of beauty, probably the most uh, obvious one. A ring is is valued as, as being beautiful and, and has worth to it, but uh, it's also temporary and it decays over time and that's why it became rusty. So he hung on to it like he did the the stone and uh, the lock of hair, but it became all rusty. 
So it basically wasn't worth much to him anymore. You see, cause that stone fell through my pocket. And that lock of hair flew away with the wind. And then the song goes on uh, to say, You see, cause that, that stone fell through my pocket and that lock of hair flew away with the wind. So he, he lost he lost both other forms of of beauty too and and all he was left with was this rusty ring that he had stolen from the flying horses so maybe that was love getting getting back at him in a way somehow karma in a sense that he had natural forms of beauty he had this lock of hair that he probably should have hung on to a little more closely but it blew away with the wind and he didn't keep the stone in a good place was in his pocket and he had a hole and it fell through so he lost the two things that probably should have represented beauty the most and he stole something the ring that he thought he really wanted that turned out to rust anyway and and wasn't worth anything and that's all he was left with in the end yeah so to me i didn't make a distinction between the ring and those other two things like that he was supposed to hang on to those that were more like pure forms of beauty i thought of all three as being just materialistic in general like you know the real beauty was this woman walking by on the beach and it was temporary but you were, you should have just enjoyed that moment of seeing this beautiful beautiful person walk by or mm. seeing that stone and maybe you pick it up for a second but you leave it where it's where you found it for the next person to find and keeping that ring isn't the point you should have enjoyed the ride with the horses and ah, he comes okay. to that realization by the end because he says if you chance upon either don't right. pick them up don't just pick them up don't try to find me they're happier yeah. on their own because beauty doesn't know a home. So the yeah, rock, right. the lock of hair, the ring, l- let them go. So he got what he needed out of that experience. He doesn't He doesn't need the tangible items anymore. Right. And so I think at the end, the wisdom of the badger ah, hopefully yeah. sunk in for him. And he's, he's set, sharing that message with the next person that might happen upon these objects to say, just just leave them there. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. So if leave you find them, pick here. them up. Yeah. Yep. And if you take a look down the road, you'll see this badger and a one-eyed toad. They won't say a word. They'll just look at you. You know, that's that's kind of his his realization that they were kind of giving them, him this look like, you shouldn't take that stuff. You should leave it there. Probably knowing that that happens a lot because to find true beauty, everybody probably goes through some desire to have tangible things and puts importance on stuff over over ideas and experiences. And, and visions and things that that truly have more of a lasting beauty that's yeah awesome. i thought that was really cool i thought that was a really cool song that's why this ended up being one of my favorites yeah musically it's a it's a great song it's fun to hear them all singing in rounds and, and this is one of those where i was saying before that this is a band you have to see live to truly appreciate them they have they have so much fun on this song i think that's partly why it was the last song it's a crowd favorite because you can sing along I think they have a lot of fun playing this song too because when I saw them and in other videos I've seen of them with live concerts, they often gather in a in a half circle and they're they're playing to the fans but they're also playing to each other and you can see they're really they're really feeding off of the music, getting into it. This is one of those they can just drag on forever and ever and repeat some of those finishing lines and just make the song keep going. So definitely a a staple song for the band Dispatch. Musically, I, I really liked this song as well. I mean, we, we've been focusing on the, the story, the, the folk element to it, which I think is what really makes it a, a masterpiece. I mean, that's what makes it stand out is the, the story and the message. But 
The vocals are great. Pete really shines with a bass line in this song a couple times too. That's that's really soothing. And, and then there, there's some interesting elements uh, toward the end. If you listen closely, there's this indistinct chatter around the four minute mark. To me, it kind of sounded like like a bar scene. And I was wondering if, if that was some connection to this place where the merry-go-round was at and if it was supposed to represent you know, people all hanging out in this bar-type atmosphere with the, the merry-go-round or the carousel playing this game and just hanging out, chatting in the background, having a good time. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about connecting it to the amusement park where the merry-go-round was there, but I did think of it in terms of, like, this is definitely a band of friends sharing this music with each other, and so all those voices together kind of back to that live feel just made it seem like a bunch of people hanging out and listening to this music and then the other part i don't know if you read about ping pong is one of one of the things that stands out in this song if you're listening through all of those voices you can hear a ping pong ball being hit and back hit back and forth i missed that i gotta go back That's it's cool. kind of subtle and i don't know if i would have heard it had i not read that in the credits but i went back mm-hmm. to listen to it and you can hear it at the end from the flying horses, and I can't begin to explain how. I stole a ring from the flying horses, and it's all rusty now. I stole a ring from the flying horses, and I can't begin to explain how. I stole a ring from the flying horses, and it's all rusty now. I stole a ring from the flying horses, and I can't begin to explain how. That is cool. Well, should we move on to the next one? Yeah, let's do it. Track six is titled Questioned Apocalypse. To the drugstore to check my head Gets the bright light But she caught me from behind And though I did not know And though I did not care I could not tell That I was blind to think my world This was one of my favorite songs lyrically And we'll talk about that a little bit As we get into the message of it But to start off I had also read this was the only electric song on this album and it didn't really occur to me until I read that but I went back and listened and yeah it has kind of that electric guitar at the beginning sets it apart a little bit and like I said I think I liked the songs as there were more instrumentation on them as opposed to some of the stripped down songs with some exceptions I guess but generally speaking as they layered in more instrumentation I think I liked them better and this one stood out to me musically as well yeah totally it was a little faster pace it definitely had more of a rock feel to it. And then are those police whistles at the 245 mark? Did you hear that? I think so, yeah. I don't know why they threw that in there, but that was kind of interesting. Yeah. What did you think of this one lyrically? Well, that's a good question. I I, I looked at this and, and uh, tried to figure it out for a while, but for some reason it wasn't, it wasn't connecting, so I had to consult the interwebs, and I went to song lyric interpretation website and... And reading in the comments, I found a pretty good explanation. This one comes from Sparky the Fish. He <laughs> says, To me, this song is pretty similar to the allegory of the cave by Socrates. Basically, the man in the cave is the narrator of the song, and he is enlightened and shown that his tiny image of the world, his little bubble, is not reality after all. When he tries to go back into the cave to enlighten the others, They want to kill him because they're happy with the way things are in their version of reality. Just like how the brother thinks the narrator has been poisoned or corrupted. And I, after reading that, I think I kind of understood the song. So 
Thanks to P- Sparky the Fish, uh, this song makes a little more sense. <laughs> <laughs> hey, in the prior song, it was a badger and a toad giving wisdom. Right, yeah. Why the hell not couldn't Sparky the Fish yeah, right. shed some light on this song, right? Interesting. I actually hadn't read anything, so I had my own interpretation, and I guess I wasn't too far off. So to break it down from the beginning, to me, it says, I went over to the drugstore to check my head against the bright light. And so I thought the drugstore would be somewhere where it's, you you go into a drugstore, you know how those halogen lights are super bright? Oh, yeah. So it'd be very revealing, but it's all synthetic. So you'd be able to see a lot, but it wouldn't be a a very true, you know, illumination of who you are. But he's there trying to like, really inspect himself underneath this synthetic light. He thinks that's what's going to give him insight into himself, essentially. And then without warning, this woman catches him from behind. And it's we, it's not clear what she does to enlighten him. From that moment, it sounds like he's changed. It says she shattered all that he knew. And so he straightened up his back and he cried out, you know, do, mu- do what you must do. So it, this... This figure almost feels like it's ethereal or godlike or something in an instant, giving him this knowledge of the world or the divine or something, and and it just instantly changes his perspective on everything. Yeah, I mean, or it could be any moment in life or person you come upon that provides you with some type of information or this eye-opening experience that forces you to to question everything or challenge what you thought was real so i mean it could be something extremely simple it wouldn't necessarily have to be a higher power or some all-knowing person that shares this complicated piece of information that moves this this person's world it could just be that they expose them to something totally different than what they thought was reality and it's just earth shattering because they would have never expected it yeah and then so when the chorus says take me now before i change my mind I could relate to that back for me personally in the context of religion, hearkening back to the first song, you know, I was raised really wanting to believe and really wanting to be a part of a church and really wanting to have this clarity about the apocalypse or or the end of the world and and God. And I really never had the ability to do that. I, I couldn't quite believe it, despite how much I wanted to, and I wanted to be a part of this church and wanted to be part of this community of people that just believed I never could except for fleeting moments. You know, maybe there was something that made me believe or, or at least I could convince myself for a moment that it was all real. And I actually remember having moments in my adolescence. It probably sounds extreme where I felt like I had a moment moment where I could believe. And I actually would kind of call out to God and say, take me now before I change my mind. Basically like, I don't know if I'm going to believe tomorrow, so you should kill me right now, because the least I'd know I'd go to heaven. Wow. Take me now before I change my mind. So that's where I was listening to this song. That line didn't really stick out to me, but it does now after hearing your experience and then thinking about the interpretation that I read from the online user who was given their perspective on the song. Perhaps the, this, this person is confronted by somebody or something that deep down or at least on the surface his gut tells him you should probably pay attention you should listen to what this person has to say and go with it 
but there's a part of him that's a little bit scared and doesn't know for sure if he wants to be exposed to whatever would remove his naivety and challenge his preconceived notions. So take me now before I change my mind. You know, I'm pretty sure this is this is right, but don't give me a chance to think it over more because I might I might go the other way instead. And it sounds like he was able to hold on to that at least long enough to go into the next stanza where he's trying to pass that wisdom on to his brother that doesn't quite have it yet. It's been exposed that his earnings, the main narrator, are all used up. And his brother's feeling bad for him saying, why have you poisoned my brother's cup? Why have you taken taken these winnings away from me? But the narrator's wise enough to say, eh, it doesn't matter. Things are fleeting, but you'll understand later because when this woman comes for you and enlightens you, you'll know what really matters. You know, kind of like tying it back to the prior song as well, materialism. Yeah, I, I think that overarching theme is pretty obvious in this song that it's about being challenged to qu- question your beliefs, potentially see things a different way, and that some people are sheltered, naive, and would choose to be that way. So the one brother does go through that journey and discovers that he was wrong, or this this woman had something to share that enlightened him. And he wants to go back and share it with them, but they think he's been poisoned or corrupted. He's been fed some lies and, and that uh, he's trying to do the same to them. But the narrator, like you said, knows that, well, whether, whether you take it now from my mouth or you learn the hard way or you figure this out later on, one way or another, this information will come to you. This was one of the times where, for a moment at least, I wished they weren't an independent band in the 90s because I could have seen a music video for this on MTV. I was like watching this as a story, and I don't know, like the the figure I feel like it could have been like a really cool opportunity to have like some woman dressed in white or something that kind of comes up and like puts her hands on somebody for a moment and mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know it seemed like there would I just got a really cool visual watching or, or in my mind the, the imagery of this song before I change my mind take me now before I lose my Let's move on to track seven. This one's a little different. This is an instrumental track. It's titled Seasons, Movement Three. I really like this thrown into the album. It was kind of a nice break at the, the halfway point of the album. I'm not sure who's playing all the instruments, but a really good variety of instruments. 
One name we need to throw out there is Sulianne Tan. She's playing on the flute in this song. And I, I looked her up. She is a music professor at Middlebury College, which is where the band members met. And oh, interesting. She's still a professor there today. I think it said she teaches contemporary music and, and uh, some, some classes with performance. And she makes another appearance later on in the album on the flute again. But I didn't look this up to confirm, but I'm, I'm wondering if if she was one of their professors, because I think they were all studying music when they were in college. I bet you're right. What a cool story. You know, you're more familiar with their discography, obviously, than I am, and this is really the only album I really know of theirs. Is an instrumental track dropped in a common thing they do? Oh, man, you're putting me on the spot. I can't think of another notable one off the top of my head, but I'm not sure. I'll have to go back and check. I don't think so. My gut would say no. And I think at the end, harmonica comes back in, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm imagining that's Brad again. Yeah, I think Brad on harmonica. Man, that would be really cool to have a college professor that's instructing all three of them in some way to play on this. I wonder if at the time they had enough of a following with file sharing and stuff for her to know that the flute playing might be something that a lot of people would reach it would reach a lot of people or not i meant to look that up but i didn't get around to it so i'm not sure but definitely a cool guest appearance on there especially if she was connected to the time when they were in college when they were forming the band and, and just getting together you know maybe maybe she was helping them even with with some of their early songs i'm not sure but definitely uh, something to go look into yeah at the time it might have seemed like a favor to them and in retrospect you know, she she may have been heard more yeah, on this album yeah. than any other thing that she had done for playing the flute. But she's great, yeah, definitely really talented. Yeah, I totally agree. Like I said, a fun little pearl to throw in that album. It's a, a nice halfway point. So I think we're ready to move on to the second half of the album. Sounds good. We'll flip the record over here. And I'm putting that in quotes in a way because in 1996, the idea of a vinyl record coming back into popularity is probably not super high on the list of things that they would have envisioned both being such an independent band but even in the times vinyl music not knowing that that's going to be making a comeback so i'm taking a little bit of creative license here and deciding that if this were the album for me if i was constructing these songs in a way i'd like ending with that instrumental as we move into track eight so let's flip the record over here we'll start side two this next song is called mayday Mayday, mayday, mayday. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Troubles are brought back by you. 
right, so fittingly, for a song called Mayday, we start this off with a military-sounding drum, which I thought was a cool touch. I really like that drum opening there. Even the vocals are a little intense. You know, it almost feeds into that piercing drum. You get the sense that it's going to be a serious uh, track. I saw you yesterday. Your eyes were the color of some kind of gray. I hear what you're saying. Don't let me go. I got all these people down below. What'd you make of the lyrics to this song? I'm not sure if I pulled a literal context out of these lyrics. I think it's one of those songs that can be interpreted different ways. Obviously, with the the military reference and the and the drums and the song title being Mayday, which is a common term that you would throw out if you're in trouble. Or this could be a song about a relationship as well and the idea of there being a, a man off to sea, a man overboard could symbolize some type of distance in their relationship. You know, there's lines like, I saw you yesterday, the opening verse here, your eyes were the color of some kind of gray. I think the reference to the eyes being some color of gray is that she's feeling sad, she's down. And then later in the song, he says, troubles are brought back by you. Funny how we go down. We go anywhere but to the ground. He's acknowledging that there's some trouble potentially in their relationship. Then he says, so I, so I heard that you're doing fine. You've flown off and place has been on your mind. I can't understand, but I need to know. I'll speak to you through this radio. So again, he, he could be on a ship out to sea, and that's the only form of communication, literally, or potentially speaking through this radio is speaking through some distant form uh, that's not face-to-face. That could be a metaphor as well for not being able to be together. I'm not really sure who it was uh, referring to by saying they, like when they say they rush to talk, they rush to tell. I don't know if that's society or other people judging them or thinking like they need to do something or be be something. I saw the relationship narrative for sure, but I decided to go with a different thought process when I was reading this, given the Mayday and military background, that maybe this was talking about somebody lost to depression or suicide or drug use, you know, something that might follow like a PTSD situation. Like maybe mm. this person that he's singing about actually does have a military background. And so your eyes are some kind of gray, could be like he saw them in a very dark way. Maybe he saw them in their casket if it was a suicide or if they were lost to depression or drugs that they just really weren't themselves anymore. Like when he looked in their eyes, they were distant and somewhere else. And then the they that you were asking me about, I thought of that as like society looking at that, maybe judging it, like you said, and saying like, you know, they shouldn't have taken drugs or they shouldn't have fallen into that depression. And, you know, it's their fault for committing suicide, if you think of it in its darkest form. But the narrator of the song, understanding that this person maybe was doing all they could, given the 
PTSD that they were going through. The Troubles Are Brought Back By You is all the trouble that he's bringing to the people that love him. And then the funny how we go down, we go anywhere but to the ground maybe is hope for him living on some other way that maybe if he's not here, maybe when we die, we don't actually just go to the ground. Maybe we go somewhere else, you know, up into heaven or in the sky. And when he speaks to this person, if they really truly are lost, he's speaking into some other dimension. You know, this person maybe is hearing him as a ghost or as a spirit of themselves hmm. okay. through the radio. That line kind of almost gave me, made the hair on my arm stand up a little bit. I can understand, but I don't need to know I'll speak to you through this radio. He says, I can't understand, but I don't need to know I'll speak to you through this radio. As I was thinking of it through that lens of it being maybe this person that had passed on mm-hmm. I did think of it as kind of like being revisited through a ghost or through some sort of mm. seance or some way that you might reach out to your friend that was no longer with us I like that I could see that layer of it it's also another yeah. Pete song he's he's known as liking to sing about relationships and whatnot so that's maybe why my mind went that way but clearly with the the music with the opening drums it gives you that military feel to it i didn't i didn't think about taking it that next layer of attaching it to ptsd and uh, the issues of depression and sometimes suicide that follow and people do rush to to judge to tell to say things in reference to those situations what did you think of this one musically other than the drums yeah that's the part that stood out the most to me was just how it fit again maybe the, the narrative that i attached to it but even if it was more about a relationship it was still under the metaphor of a military situation so to have those Mm -hmm. that snare drum that sounded like a marching drum i thought fit that that's what stood out the most to me a good example of fitting the music to the message yeah yeah totally well should we go on to the next one yeah let's take a listen to track number nine this one is titled born normal What it's like to be me. I'm not saying that I do. So in the weeks leading up to recording this podcast, I had mentioned that this is sort of the song that's eluded me in terms of understanding its meaning. And I, I have to say at this point, I still don't know for sure what this song is about. I had read somewhere that they had a friend with a disability that unfortunately had passed away. And maybe in a blog somewhere mentioning that maybe this song was a reference to that gentleman his name was Larry but I I don't know for sure if that's what this was about um, so I can't definitively say that and otherwise it was hard for me to make heads or tails of the lyrics yeah I had a difficult time with this song as well I'm not sure exactly what it's about I did pick up on there being a few different characters or people involved in this song there's the the perspective of the child and then this other person who I presume is trying to understand this child or connect with them uh, somehow. And then there's society or this other group of people who 
either don't care about this person or aren't really trying to understand them. For whatever reason, I gather that they're different in some way or another, different from the idea of whatever it means to be normal. People are writing them off as if they don't have much to contribute or that they're easy to understand on a, on a simple level, like they got it all figured out. But in reality, that person has a lot more to share. There's some character in the song who's really trying to understand that person and connect with them, maybe the only one who's doing it, despite the fact that other people really don't take the time to get to understand that person. And then that person also is speaking their mind as well. There's the the line that, that says, just look him in the eyes, can he hear us? Look him in the eyes, can he hear us? Can he hear us calling back to my friend? Won't you write he said, you have no idea what it's like, what it's like to be me. And then the other character says, I'm not saying that I do. I just wish that something was different. I'm not saying that I do. I just wish that something was different. Saying that I do. Saying I, I know, I know we're not the same, but I wish something was different. And to me, I think that different is, I wish we could relate to each other or communicate better for whatever reason that may be. The other character replies is, yes, I hear you. I have, I have all ideas in the world. And that, that line really sticks out because I feel like this person doesn't think they're being heard or valued by the rest of society. And they're saying, you know, yes, I do hear you. And I have all the ideas in the world, you know, give, give me a chance, give me the time, speak to me. So I, I yeah. think overall the song is about all of those characters from the person who's misunderstood and, and wanting to say something, but not really knowing how to connect to the people who don't understand that person and don't even try to connect with them. And then that third layer of the people who really do want to be there, but don't really know how, and they're trying, but it's a struggle because there are some differences that, that make it that way. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're making me understand a little bit better with your interpretation. I think you got a good one there. I didn't think about the, yes, I hear you. I have all ideas in the world being from the perspective of somebody else. I thought of it as the same person that was saying, can he hear us? For he to answer saying, yes, I hear you. I, I have all ideas in the world. Like I have the same thoughts and fears and wants as you do. Maybe I look different or maybe I act different, but I'm still a person in here. I'm still all the things you are. I still have all the thoughts and ideas in the world. Born a normal child, but the dream didn't last long. What did they say? The reason why I did go there with thinking maybe it was about Larry or at least about somebody that they knew personally was it so specific. The born a normal child part wouldn't be a necessary detail in this story to get that across. They, they very well wouldn't have had to be that. So it sounds like somebody that really did have a, a change in you know their development from when they were born as a child and until where they are today. Yeah, possibly on surface level, the child appeared quote unquote normal when they were born, but these differences slowly emerged over time. You know, the, the dream didn't last long. Right, yeah, it says the dream didn't last long. So it felt very specific, it felt like a real story that they had because mm -hmm. it, it, again it seemed like an unnecessary detail to whatever the message if the message of this is that we need to listen to people regardless of how they're presenting it doesn't it's not necessary to include that they maybe didn't always have this challenge from birth 
And then the other part that made me think of that is eight years gone by. It was, it's a specific amount of time that, again, makes it seem like it's a real experience that, that maybe somebody has. Yeah, and early on in the song, someone do something. Don't turn in disgust. Just look him in the eyes. Can he hear us? That's the lead up to what I was talking about before. To me, that's the person standing up for this child who mm-hmm. has been labeled as abnormal for whatever reason by society saying, no, don't look at this person differently. They're still a normal child and you should treat them the same. Whatever it is they're they're faced with that makes them different in the eyes of other people. Yeah, and I'm reading again that line about eight years gone by, wondering if maybe that's it's eight years since this person's passed because... It's past tense there, and it said, suffered, suffered he so gallantly. You know, they talked about their friend Larry who had passed away. I don't know the timing of that in relation to, you know, this being their first album. That would have been a long time. It would have been eight years prior to 96 at the earliest. Yeah, possibly. Um, so I don't know, but but it does make it sound like maybe this person has passed away. Possibly, but the, the few lines before that say, calling back to my friend, won't you write me again, won't you say... This is the end, eight years gone by. Maybe it means he hasn't talked to him in eight years and he's ah, true. wanting him to reach yeah. out possibly. Or maybe the child is eight years old now and you know, born a child that was presumably normal, but then eight years have gone by and there clearly have been some developments that have created for a more difficult situation, whatever that may be. But then there, there's, there's some strife between the two characters of you know the one saying you have no idea what it's like to be me nobody really says that in a, a pleasant context it's normally a, a, a snippy remark in like a heated conversation where you, say, you don't know what it's like to be me they care about each other there's a connection between these two characters but there's also some some conflict of some sort it seems like what did he do, Lord, to receive all this? And was it a narrow mess? Well, earlier in the song, what punishment is this? And what did he do, Lord, to receive all this? And was it a narrow miss? You know, that, that part is difficult for me, especially if we're thinking about a child with some type of a disability, as if asking the Lord, what, what did he do to deserve to be put on this earth? with these circumstances of being labeled as a a child who's not normal by society and the challenges that come with that. And then to ask, was it a narrow miss? I don't, I don't exactly know for sure what he means. Like if he's asking the Lord, if there was a mistake or an error in the design or something, a narrow miss that led to this problem, like maybe it was a, a birth defect or something. And maybe the child was born without one of their limbs or, or something that made life way more difficult for them and then kind of pleading to god why you know why would you do this um maybe it's their child why would you do this to my child why would you have him born this way put put him on this earth knowing that it's going to be such a more difficult road compared to the again quote unquote normal person that doesn't uh, have those extra obstacles to face that's kind of what it sounds like to me yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like he's pleading with god saying why did you do this? And then it was it a narrow miss is kind of like, mm-hmm. was it, was it at least close? Like, was it happenstance that could have gone one way or the other is, 
are things that trivial where one person gets hit with this and somebody doesn't? Yeah, well, my my brain, uh, being in the medical field, went to something like Down syndrome, which is one mutation, and maybe that would be considered a a near miss in the sense that it's a deviation from normal. But I think the overall message of the song is to not look at something like that as being abnormal and to continue to treat that child as a normal child despite the fact that maybe they did not develop uh, without some complexities yeah i think for a song that both of us weren't entirely sure what it is about we unpacked it about as well as we could yeah and who knows maybe we're way off if we are and you're listening help us out (laughs) please shoot us a message because this one was a little difficult to digest well let's go on to the next one this one's a little bit easier to understand. Track 10 is Track 10 is called Bridges. Now I'm old and now I'm much older. And this weight can take me out to sea. I feel the pull beneath my feet. But I can see her she is calling. This is another Pete song. It's very elegant. I really like some of the vocals in here, especially when they do a round on the part roll over him and mother's hands i can't remember the other lyrics in that line but that's a pretty cool part yeah waiting for the fingers of the gray wave or his mother's hand to roll over him with endless water that was my favorite line i think that's what you're referring to waiting for the fingers of the gray wave or his mother's hand Yeah, that part is really cool. I think the general theme here is that the bridges represent or symbolize all the different paths we take in life, the things we have to cross or overcome, the 10,000 bridges, uh, show me father, and the reference to mother. I think it's about an individual being guided by their parents, showing them the way and helping them understand life and everything that comes with it but i think it's also about coping with the loss of parents as well did you pick up on that oh, i guess i didn't pick up on that now i'm older now much older and this wave can't take me out to see i feel the pull beneath my feet but i can see her she is calling me i i feel like that's depicting somebody who doesn't have their parents to lean on anymore at that point they're older now folks are gone you know they can still hear them and feel them and uh they're they're there in spirit but they don't physically have them to to rely on to to take them out to see yeah that's cool i didn't pick up on that the part that stuck out to me was in that line i had read earlier where it seemed like it could maybe go either way in terms of whether you're interpreting that as a positive or a negative so waiting for the fingers of the gray wave or his mother's hands to roll roll over him with endless water. Earlier on the water stop song, I mentioned that water sounded like a bad thing, and you could you could use water as a metaphor for positive or negative. In that song, it was when will it stop? This one, it seemed like he's waiting for one or the other. That's kind of where I th- I thought of this as somebody kind of at a crossroads, and the bridges represent maybe different ways he could go. 
but waiting for the fingers of the great wave to roll over him, that sounds terrible to me. That sounds like something you wouldn't want. Or, in contrast, his mother's hand to roll over him and maybe comfort him. And this one stood out musically to me, too, just the harmonies, as you mentioned. I think that really stood out. Those were those were beautiful. Yeah, it's a, a pleasant song to listen to, for sure. And so is the next one. This is maybe one of the underrated songs from the track. It starts out with an instrumental part as well that has Sue Leantan again on the flute. This is track 11, and it's titled Walk With You. And lay your head to rest We'll light the candles now They won't be lit for long We'll know our day was blessed To be with you, all I've done. Yeah, you mentioned this one starts off with an instrumental. That instrumental lasts until the two and a half minute mark. With the flute entering again, I thought that this was going to be another instrumental song. So I was surprised to hear the lyrics kick in at the 2.30 mark. Myself. Yeah, it catches you off guard when Brad starts singing in there. Yeah. When he comes in there, his voice is so soft, it almost fades in from the music and you don't even really know that there's a, a break when the, the lyrical song is beginning. It kind of flows right in there. I shouldn't be surprised that that's him. It does sound like his voice, but then the lyrics too. I mean, I will walk with you. We talked about him being the one of religious conviction, mm-hmm. using the stars as guides, kind of reminds me of the three wise men when Christ was born. Using the stars as guides. All of the allusions to religion are kind of, I'll use the term again, sort of cryptic. They're not super mm-hmm. overt. And walk with you is you know, a very common phrase that you hear Christians talk about with their path with Christ, mm-hmm. to walk with Christ. You could... Look at it as guiding words or something that anybody would say to another person that they want to come with them and, and protect, and be there for them. Lyrics like, so put your hand in mine and lay your head to rest. We'll light the candles now. They won't be lit for long. We'll know our day was blessed. You know, seeing all the photos and videos you've sent me recently with you and your son, you know, it's difficult not to think about how, you know, you're putting his hand in yours and and letting him rest rest his head and how you'll walk with him and he'll walk with you and, and how much this can be about a, a parental guidance as well. There is this feeling of some superior figure, whether that be a Christ-like figure guiding somebody metaphorically through their life or a parent uh, with a child. There's this, this element of, of protecting or showing somebody the way. So I thought I thought a lot about you and, and uh, the process you're going through right now, bringing this child into the world. 
Uh, that's really cool. I actually didn't even cross my mind thinking about that. He's on my mind all the time, so I'm surprised I didn't put that together in this one, but that's cool that you did. Yeah, definitely. I can I can read it that way as a dad. Yeah, it's a, it's a simple song. It's very elegant, but uh, a beautiful message. I know some people have said that this song doesn't really fit well. I know some people have criticized the, the instrumental tracks and, and the flute and that it doesn't jive well with the rest and that this was kind of a filler song with some cliche lyrics. But I mean, to, to me, this is one that I've always really enjoyed. I think it's fun to sing along. Brad's voice is, is really great. And I mean, he's, he's more solo on this one. There's not a lot of background uh, vocals to it. So you really get to hear his, his pure, clean, you know, stripped down acoustic uh, sounding voice. You know, as somebody that's new to Dispatch, I disagree with maybe some of the fans' feelings, if that's a common thought on this, that they have too much on the instrumental or the flute doesn't fit. That's to me where things shine the most, like I said before, when they bring in more instrumentation. I mean, I think with the lyrics being how they are, especially the way that Chad writes them that are kind of those little worlds or stories that he creates, I almost get the sense of it being kind of like mystical and like minstrel type of Mm -hmm. stuff. So when you put flutes and, you know, kind of like woodland creatures with the badger and the toad, and I, I think that instrumentation adds to those little worlds and stories. Yeah, agreed. Well, should we move on to the last track? Yeah, let's do it. This is by far my favorite track on the album. It's one that always gets me a little choked up. This is the final track of this album. Track number 12 is titled Elios. great lead-in description to this one. I read that it was written about a gardener named, and you're going to have to help me out, it's it's Elias. Am I saying it correctly? I've always pronounced it Elias. Elias. And Chad had met him in Zimbabwe in 94, so just a couple years before releasing this album. And Elias shared his dream of one day helping his three sons with a university education. And that really inspired Chad, and they became pen pals of sorts. They wrote letters back and forth, but they were not able to send them to Zimbabwe, or, or at some point anyway, that communication was truncated, and, and maybe those letters never made it, or maybe some of them did. But nevertheless, they, they did meet up again at, one, at some point. And in the song, Chad praises the character Elias, and he he says, as the song says, he could answer all the questions of the world in just a word. So he really made an impact on him for whatever reason. And that dream of his, that his sons would one day see more of the world and get an education. And so he set up a successful fundraiser in the summer of 2005, and they were able to raise enough money for all three of his sons to become educated. And then it grew from there, as I understand. Yeah, they had the Elias Fund that they raised money for for quite some time. They even threw a concert in Madison Square Gardens in New York City where the proceeds all went towards the Elias Fund to help educate kids around the globe in difficult 
situations and also some of it went to help uh, local organizations with the same missions they started out as putting on this concert for one night and the tickets sold out within a half an hour the the only people who had access to the the tickets and pre-sale were the the fans of dispatch on their myspace page myspace and napster I, i'm being flashed back here right yeah you know back in back in those days when we didn't have bots to place ticket sales the minute they went on sale for or or super high speed internet or things like that you know nowadays it's not uncommon for shows to sell out in the first five minutes but that's because of technology but back then you would have had to have people on their dial-up taking up the the landline of the phone at their house so they could be on the internet on their myspace page (laughs) to to jump on and and clicking refresh and knowing that it probably took five minutes to refresh every time just to hit that button and purchase the ticket so for madison square gardens to sell out in a half an hour that's pretty impressive it's the only independent band at least at the time who has ever sold out madison square gardens and they added a second show because of that which went on to sell out in 24 hours and then a third night that also sold out so they ended up selling out madison square gardens three nights in a row and all proceeds from the ticket sales went directly to charities uh, fighting disease famine social injustice and majority of it went to zimbabwe uh, because they were so inspired by Elias and the family and his story of simply wanting to, you know, work, work his tail off so his kids could get educated and have a better lives for themselves. What a cool story. Hearing you recount that again with them selling out Madden, Madison Square Garden in addition to the last Dispatch concert, I keep wondering how it is as a huge music fan that I had n- no knowledge of this band. Yeah, what was the quote that... I shared with you when I told you the album that we were going to be reviewing. I was I was keeping it a secret for quite a while and then I shared something that that Brad had said that was my that was my hint. Okay, yeah, that? I think I remember something like that. I I was thinking in my best Yogi Berra impression, they're the most popular band that nobody's ever heard of is the phrase that kind of comes to mind. Yeah, Maybe some, that's something like something that. I got to that I got to look this up now cuz that that really speaks volumes to to what you said about being surprised you hadn't heard of them when so many people regarded them as their favorite band for all those years i found the quote back that i read oh okay read it back yeah so this was in an interview i think the interviewer had had said something to to brad about you know something alluding to the same thing uh, that you said that how could this band that's so popular that has all this following of people be somebody that uh this reporter hadn't heard of before you know basically saying like how come i wasn't exposed to you guys earlier on and and brad uh replied by saying we've we've been called the biggest band nobody's ever heard of people either knew everything about the band or nothing there was no middle ground and i i think you know coming full circle to what we were saying before earlier when we were given their history had they decided to take on a, a, a label or a big a big producer or manager and and sign with somebody and, and not be independent, then perhaps they would have become a household name and gained that notoriety. But they stayed true to their roots and they were happy with 
with putting out the music they wanted and having the fans that that they had and and uh letting word of mouth and napster and and concerts and and touring in their van wimpy oh yeah we've got to mention that's the name of the the name of the van was wimpy that's right i forgot about that but for those who have heard of this band and, and know at least something about them this is probably one of those songs that they're familiar with and some awesome music as well starting out with some really cool drums that give you an african tribal feel to them and then even some words spoken in an african dialect which i looked up if i'm pronouncing this correctly it's the african dialect shona s-h-o-n-a it translates to if jesus could be seen i would be happy with him we would be happy with him how are you are you strong I am strong if you are strong too. I am strong. I am strong. Yeah, I thought that was really cool to put that Shona dialect in here, having the history with this real person that he knew and met in Zimbabwe. I think my first run through this album, I had texted you that the line that stood out certainly the most on this song and perhaps the most on the album itself was the phrase, the distance is short when your hand carries what your eye found. You had a really good interpretation of that line. You know, the hand is what puts things into motion. And... Even though Elias is on the other side of the world of Chad, and that's a far distance, that distance is short if they're connected through through the ideas and, and uh, the mission of educating the youth, whether that be Elias's kids or, or 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 youth in general that are in situations in third world countries that that don't have the luxury that we do in America. That um, if they're both working toward the common goals and allowing what they saw with their eyes to to be manifested in doing things with their hand with their hands carrying out the work then then the actual distance between them is actually pretty short Yeah, that's a that's a good enough interpretation for me. I think that's really beautiful. I just couldn't quite unpack it. It it, it felt weighty, but I wasn't sure exactly what it meant in the context of the song, but that's cool. I like that. And I guess Honest and Manuel are the names of his sons. I, I guess he has three sons, I thought, but maybe only two of them are named here in the song. Is that what you thought? That could be. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I... I hadn't looked into that, but yeah, that makes sense because it says, well, you know, they're at school now, uh, given the chance that mm-hmm. their father's never seen to see what's beyond section 17. Did you ever figure out what that that was about? I know you were curious. You were asking me if I knew. I, I happened to stumble upon it. I, I had read that that's, that I guess they label regions of Zimbabwe as sections. And the only thing I saw was that section 17 happens to be an area that's highly riddled with HIV and AIDS. 
infections. So a place that would need more help from this fund than than others, even though yeah. there might be many areas of right. Zimbabwe yeah. to do. I came upon that too. And obviously those are the areas that have the greatest need. So it's a, a good representation of Elias wanting his children to have a better life or easier uh, path um, than he had growing up in a place like Section 17. One of the, the characters we haven't talked about in this song is Elias's wife, the, the children's mother. I think my favorite verse of, of the entire song is that, that section where it says, it's kind of kind of hard for me to read these lyrics because it always it always gets me for some reason. I think I just I picture the mother, you know, just really good mental imagery. It says, "And I see your wife; she stands stooped over by the fire outside, and I see your boys. And when they look up, you know, I think they've got their mother's eyes because she looks so proud, she looks so happy. You know, she looks so proud, she looks so happy, and it just repeats there. You know, I." I really like that. The, the focus is on Elias, but you know, there's a, a second parent in the picture as well. And, and, um, the way they sing that verse, it, it lets you know that, that she left a mark on them too. And the way she views her, her children, how much it makes her proud, how, how much it makes her happy. You know, despite the fact that they're in a, a rough environment with a lot of obstacles that Chad didn't have to experience growing up in America and that we don't have to, you know, to still not lose sight of what's what's most important, that family unit, and, and how much you know they they want to do everything they can uh, for their kids. Pretty powerful. That is it. I, I didn't really even think about that, but it's cool that Chad included the wife as well. You know, he had the relationship with Elias, but recognizing that these boys were influenced by both their parents, it makes me wonder what culturally things are like in Zimbabwe in terms of you know matriarchal or patriarchal type of society. I don't know enough about that to know if that would be a rare acknowledgement in a song for for somebody to point out the mother, if that might make her feel extra special, if that's not, you know, if it's a patriarchal lineage and, you know, you're you're making your father proud as a child, you know, the focus may be more mm-hmm. on on that and the mother is not highlighted in that, especially if we're talking about these are sons of his and i may i'm just conjecturing here but it may that may have been very special and unique mm. given how the societal structure is i don't know i'll have to do some research but nonetheless even if it's not i think that's cool that he acknowledged not only elias who he had a relationship with but the the wife as well and the mother of these boys there's another stanza in the song early on in the song actually it's how it it starts how it opens up that really really uh paints a good picture and sticks with me too. You raise your head, beat the sun. So you're up before the sun, you're up bright and early. Uh, but your boys, they lie so close to you. Do you dare get up and wake the two? You know, you picture uh, a father waking up in the morning with his, his boys. They're all sleeping in the same unit and he wants to be with them so badly. He doesn't want to wake them up. He doesn't want to disturb them for one, but he probably also wants to stay there and and be with them because he loves them but yet he knows he has to get up before the sun does because he has work to do he has to get out in the field and that work is what is going to give them the life that he wants them to have but at the same time he's missing out on being with them because he has to go out into the field and work so there's that 
wrestling with how long can I stay here and enjoy this while also having to go out and do what I, what I have to do so that I can continue to provide for them and, and, uh, you know, keep this going. That just, that really, that really sticks with me. Yeah. That's cool. There's a lot wrapped up in this song. Yeah. The one last thing I wanted to ask uh, you about in this song, and it's probably the most, um, you know, catchy part of the song where, where it says, do you think you could answer all the questions in the world with just one word? And then he answers himself. I, I think you could. You mentioned that earlier. Do you think he has such admiration for Elias that that he's this all-knowing guy with some type of wisdom beyond the average person that that would be able to answer almost any question in a in a single word, representing the fact that he could do it simplistically, or that it would be easy for him? Or do you think there is truly a word? that can answer all the questions in the world and there there's a specific answer word. All the questions of the world in just one word I think you could If you die well I can't Man, what a question. I you know, I took it more the first meaning that he had such admiration for Elias it was as if he could answer all the mysteries of the world with one word. As to whether or not there actually is a, a word, that I, I guess I would have to say I, I don't know that there would be one word that could do that. But I like the idea that if you really admire someone or look up to someone that you believe that there could be, that maybe this person has that wisdom to, to sum it up. Clearly, I don't think of myself as being that person because I can't come up with it personally. You know, going along the message of the the song and the themes of the family unit and and caring for people and doing doing whatever it takes to provide for your family i i've always thought that word would be love and i, I don't know why but I, i've always just in my head when i sing the song i like answer it myself and i've always just thought that was the obvious answer but then i was reading and it, it was other people were talking about how it was supposed to be more of a way of saying that this this character elias has infinite wisdom and and Chad looks up to him so much that he thinks he could just do remarkable things like answer all the questions in one word, which is something you obviously can't do because there's millions of questions and things are super complicated beyond one word. I never looked at it that way, though. I always thought it was just the idea of, of love trumping everything. If there, if there was one, I think that's probably the one that gets thrown out the most. Certainly in song lyrics, that's the word that's going to come out in different ways. You know, to answer those questions as best we can and as artists as best they can when they're creating work. So if you pin me down, that might be mine too, but I didn't think of it while I was listening to the song. That's cool. You've mentioned before in the past and, and used, used the term selectively uh, to call a song a perfect song. I think if if there is one for Dispatch, for me, it's it's Elias because of all, all the elements, you know, if it were just the lyrics and the and the the music by itself, maybe maybe not. But knowing the story and how much it means to Chad and the band, and and how it's kind of defined their mission with giving a lot of the proceeds back and and uh, starting the Elias Fund and the the educational funds um, that they've done and everything they've done with with charity. You know, to me, this song is perfect and it represents Dispatch. Well said, and for it to be the last song on their very first album, to think of everything that's transpired since then, both with the fund itself, but just with the band as a whole. I mean, 
you know, at the time, this was the first, they had some, they had some momentum behind them because of the shows they played and maybe the file sharing, but this was really their first official release to the public. And they didn't know where the, that wind was going to take them until this, this album took off. So to, to have this be the last one and then to watch where it went from there, I think that is a really cool story of this band. And I think you said it well, it, it has continued with them and been a pivotal stamp on what these guys are all about. I definitely agree with that. I think it's a great album from start to finish. I'm not sure. What do you think? Are there unifying themes to this album? Is it is it a concept album in any sense? Or is it a, a collection of folk stories about love, life, and religion that, or, or abstract stories that can be interpreted? A bunch of different ways that that all wound up on this album because of that unifying theme what, what do you think there yeah i think that connected most to this album from watching the documentary I, I think that understanding who these guys were and how they formed and came out of this file sharing and really as what you know, a more literal sense of what an independent band was i think that's what makes them interesting and this being that first album out of all of that made this album interesting for that reason. But the other impression I got from watching the documentary is they all seemed like very different people in a way. I, I didn't think of all three of those guys as coming together. I mean, and they were young, you know, they were in college when they formed the band. And in college, you don't really know who you are. But as we watch the documentary when they're all still young adults at the time, it was an earlier documentary, but nonetheless kind of concretized who they are a little bit more as human beings, I looked at them as all being very different people. And so then going back and listening to this album and reading, okay, that's that song's got Chad's name by it. This one's got Brad's name by it. This one's got Pete's or, or a combination. It did feel like I could see those differences or I could see each person in those songs a little bit. So similar to Deja Vu, where you had every song being, you know, side one of Deja Vu had a song by Neil Young and a song by Graham Nash and, and so on. And, and they all, you know, the unifying thing really was the story is what I came up with after doing Deja Vu. And I'm going to kind of say the same thing for this one. I didn't think that the album as a whole was a concept or had too much of a unification other than it was a story of three friends coming together and playing music in dorm rooms and small stages in a time in history where it was hard for a band like that to get momentum and somehow, perhaps through this new creation of file sharing, they did. And, you know, in retrospect, I think I wouldn't have seen these guys maybe together outside of that context. It was in some ways sort of a, a perfect coming together of all these things that made this band exist. Yeah, definitely. I want to elaborate on what you said about them being three different people contrasting people in their personal lives and then also with their musical interests and talents i think it worked worked well they had enough overlap that they blended and could put out some really good music together but i think there probably was a little bit of give and take similar to crosby stills and nash uh that you mentioned and then with with young as well where they almost had to let one person be in charge of the song, write it, you take lead and maybe dictate the rest uh, so that that person would be 
able to control the direction of that since they might see it differently than the others or differently than if the three of them were to equally be involved with the entire creation of the song from start to finish. I know in the last Dispatch documentary, Pete had elegantly stated, I mean, nicely said that, and and with, with good sincerity, honesty, that, you know, he had always thought when they first started that he and Chad were the, were the writers and, uh, Brad had other ideas. He wanted to write songs as well. And it sounded like Pete had a hard time with that at first. Cause he wasn't really saying that Brad was not a good writer, but that he and Chad were the stronger and that Brad had other strengths and that they should divide and conquer. So it sounds like they all kind of wanted to do everything. And that probably is what led to their solo careers. And, you know, as a, a fan from pretty close to the beginning, I'm glad they they did split up for a while because their solo projects were all really great. Uh, I'm a huge fan of State Radio, Chad's band, and, and uh, Brad and Pete's solo work is really awesome too. So I, I think it helped them mature as artists. And collectively, I, I lump that, that work into the Dispatch catalog as well because it all stems from the influences they had on each other that led to some of those solo projects as well and then also those solo endeavors brought them back together as a band and i I remember when they came back together and put out that album in 2012 circles around the sun i I for for whatever reason wasn't really drawn to it right away i i didn't think that it had the elements of some of the favorite tracks of mine from Silent Steeples and from Bang Bang that really made me a a big fan of them in the first place. But I I still, I listened to them and I I followed their music. And then I think somewhere I I stopped following a lot of their solo projects and, and there's probably some albums. There's some albums in the mid to late 2000s of, of their solo projects that I didn't follow. And even in through uh, 2010, uh, upward to 2017, 18, that I, that I wasn't really tracking too closely. It could have been that I wasn't listening to albums in general. I was listening to a lot of playlists and mixes and wrapped up in college and not spending as much time as I should with music. But then they, they released their 2018 and 19 albums and a lot of the new music that's coming out has really connected me back uh, to their roots, to their beginning. So for me, it's been an awesome experience to not only uh, renew my my fanhood in them as a band over the past few years with their new music, but then to also do this podcast and look back at some of those songs that introduced me to the band and learn so much about them that I didn't know before, from diving into the lyrics to picking up on little bits and pieces in the music that maybe I didn't catch the first time around with, with the help of help of you and, and uh, internet sources doing research, and then also just myself listening more intently with headphones than I would have potentially back in the day when I was doing other stuff. So for me, it's been an awesome experience reviewing these guys, and I'm extremely grateful that they're back together. Uh, aside from Pete, as we mentioned, he's um, still doing his own thing and has had some some personal issues that have made it difficult for him to tour with the band and, and be a part of, of Dispatch. Maybe he'll join forces with them again someday. But for Dispatch to be putting out music for Chad and Brad to be back together and um, for the for the the story to continue, you know, as, as a fan, it's, it's pretty awesome for me to have this band that's been putting out music for 25 years now. 
it's been 25 years since this one was released. That's crazy. Oh man, for them to yeah for for them to still be putting out music today at a pretty fast clip. This is their third album in three years, I think three and a half, four years. Third album under four years that they've put out that'll be coming out this year. So that's pretty impressive. And I mean, I I know for you this was. your first time really getting into the band and it's been awesome for me to 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 share that um with you and get your get your spin on a lot of the songs your take on it i don't know if you remember because we didn't get into it too much but i had actually picked their 2018 album location 13 that i was thinking about doing as one of the first uh, podcast episodes when we were talking about this back in 2019 i think i was going to pick that as my old album I don't know why I was going to pick one of their newer ones or maybe, maybe it was end of 2018. We were talking about this, but anyway, that album came up. It was about the same time you were talking about doing uh, Jeremy Inig, uh, Re- return of the frog queen. I was listening to that and I had given you dispatch location 13 to check out, which is totally different in a lot of ways than silent steeples. So that was actually your first introduction to their sound. We didn't do a deep dive of it, but I'm curious your take because you've been exposed to their first album and one of their their newest albums, and then I've sent you some stuff from their solo projects and some other popular hits, like like the general and some other classic songs that they've done over the years. What's your general take on them as a band? You know, where does this stand for you? Yeah, you know, I think I, from a music standpoint, I probably like the newer stuff a little bit better, even though I didn't dive as deep into it. I assume I would also appreciate the lyrics too unless they've lost a step there I'm sure they haven't so I think that if I was just listening in a vacuum I might be drawn more to their other sound I think that's because more instrumentation they have the more live feel they get and I just get a sense again from their groundswell of popularity coming from all the live shows that they saw and fans they were getting that way that really they are a live band you kind of have to appreciate them that way so the bigger they got and in sound, the more instrumentation and, and layered they got, I I felt like it sounded more like I was there listening to a concert, and I think that's where they shine the most. And so on first listen for this one, you know, I wasn't really enamored, I, I suppose, musically by all of the all of that, but I came to appreciate a lot of it. And then I think what really made me interested is, like I said, the songs that felt like they were little worlds that they took you into so from a lyrical standpoint and getting to know the guys watching the documentary that's i think what was most compelling to me it's it's very unique in in the way that they write it's different than some of the other artists that we've covered again each one writes differently within the the album so you get a little sense of different writers within this but i think probably chad specifically has those songs that kind of feel like little stories even though I like Brad's song the best um, after the falls. So I think that's probably what I took them from this the most. And then just texting back and forth with you, you know, I feel honored to be exposed to an album that was important to you. We, we'd gone back and listened to some albums that you'd picked from your childhood, like Marcy Playground. But I got the sense when we listened to that one, it was a fun album you enjoyed, but not maybe one that really connected so much with you on a personal level. And I knew this one really did, especially with that history of you finally getting to go to that concert. I think it was before we'd even 
started the podcast or before we really knew each other super well. I was looking at those updates of pictures of you on Facebook, not knowing this band, but I think one of your posts I remember said something like, these are my people. And I don't know if it was a bunch of Dispatch fans or just fans of that type of music that would have been at that festival, but that might be one of the things that made me kind of remember, like, who do I know that loves music like I do that might want to nerd out forever? So I think I remember that picture with you with a stage back behind you. It could have been Dispatch and Mm -hmm. the the words underneath the picture on Facebook that said, these are my people. And I think maybe at some point I thought maybe Shane's one of my people. If (laughs) if I'm starting a podcast, maybe this guy might want to nerd out with me for way too many hours (laughs) on a, on a recording session. So, so uh, I think that's probably what came full circle for me on, on this album and dispatch. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, cool. We'll wrap this one up for today. Yeah. What a journey. It's been, it's been a fun one. We will move to a 2021 album next. We'll let that one be a surprise. But until next time, everybody, go listen to a great album. Go now. You are forgiven. (laughs) Very good. If you are enjoying listening to Album Divers, you can support our podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing it with someone else that appreciates great music. Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time. <laughs>